Hey everybody, Rob North here from the Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades podcast. Just saying that if you like what we do and you'd like to support us financially and get access to exclusive content, you can go to patreon.com slash trrpod. As always, hold fast and on with the show. So Chris, how goes the campaign? You know, things are going well. Things are going well. Uh, I'm out there uh, kissing hands and shaking babies. Da, 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 People da, tend to get da, kind of pissed da, off at it, but I might be doing it wrong. Da, da, da. <laughs> yeah, but hey, by, I'm this, trying to by bring the time the blue... this drops, hopefully I, I will have already won. Mm. I'm trying to bring you the blue collar vote. So. I like it, yeah. Padre. I appreciate it. I'm a man of the people. I know you are. I'm the first. I said I'm the first candidate you can vote for in a very long time, where you just won't feel super gross afterwards. Yeah. I'm doing my best to bring in the uh, coastal elites, <laughs> and, like all the New Yorker types, mm, the intelligentsia. <laughs> I don't know how to vote for people I don't actively hate anymore. Yeah, right. It's the American way, my friend. I mean, if if it'll make you feel better, I, like I can rough you up, take yeah. half your money. <laughs> <laughs> touchy, touchy in ways that just aren't okay. That's also very popular in American yeah. politics right now. <laughs> Chris <laughs> says as he's stroking my shoulders, essentially. <laughs> okay, there, there is yeah. one. There is one thing that that I just want to get out of the way early. I just like that he's leaning over your shoulder, talking into your mic. <laughs> I want to get this out of the way, and I want to get this out of the way early. Jerry Falwell Jr. Gentlemen, the floor is yours. <laughs> Holy Lord. <laughs> this is not at all what I had planned, but it's so goddamn funny that we can't it, not talk about it. I never this. expected to have a better chance at fucking his wife than he does. It re- the whole thing just really kind of... <laughs> the whole thing really just kind of fell into our laps, much like his wife fell into I, the pool boy's lap. This is because... This is because he watched Teletubbies one time. One time. His dad warned him, and he didn't listen. I used to work at a restaurant in Lynchburg. I've been in the same room. Yeah, you, you spent a lot of time... Then how did you... Like, uh, and, and how was How it? is it? <laughs> It's not bad. It's I was saying, bad. She, she's yeah. not, wait, wait, she turned you down, right? That's why you converted to Catholicism. Well, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, well, she was more into the dishwasher. It, 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 it's, it's kind it's, of an intersectionality it's a, it's a, thing. We it's haven't a class made, thing for her. Yeah, we haven't made nearly enough jokes about how just impossibly classist the whole thing yeah. is. Like, I will say, I mean, look, far be it from me or any of us at this table to, to shit on somebody for just, how they get down with their Just in general. Be freaky, like, my friends. Don't be yeah. a hypocrite about being freaky. That's, That's the why. problem. Whenever, whenever you have made your business into making people's business your business. Your business is now my business. Yeah. Yeah. No, like, and your business is apparently your wife <laughs> oh, and, and as, me. As, Next week. Well, I'm just glad that he took time off to spend more time in the corner of the room with his family. <laughs> <laughs> I got to say, it takes a lot of the pressure off, though, when you're about to have sex with a man's wife and he wants to watch and you think it's going to be weird. And then he just pulls out popcorn and that takes a lot of the pressure off. <laughs> you know, if the porn industry wasn't on a complete <laughs> freeze, a little, there a little would be a parody. Just <laughs> some random dude. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm finger. guessing. I, I'm big guessing. old big gulp. <laughs> Well, obviously, he's not going to be the president or the chancellor of the university anymore. Maybe he'll go back to being a professor. And I just imagine that scene from Billy Madison. God. Where he says, if anybody cheats on this wife, or on this test, especially with my wife, who is a filthy, filthy tramp, I'm just going to lose it. You know, the Steve Buscemi part in that was a lot funnier 20 years ago. It's a good thing I called that guy. But that was the good guy with a gun, Kyle. We need more of those. 
So, uh, yeah, so if you're, if you're ever in the mood for a little cuckoldry and you need somebody to make love to your wife in front of you, you can call Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. That's the podcast we're on. Welcome back, everybody. How's that for a segue? <laughs> yeah, there we nice go. Nice recovery. Nice recovery. I'm Rob North. I am your co-host, Chris Miller. I am Kyle Graper. And I am your sailor, Michael Lernette. And, uh, hey, sailor. <laughs> that's what becky said yeah it's so it's funny one like, line. again i just have to reiterate that this is honest like what happens in the bedroom is nobody's business but this is so goddamn perfect yeah like. it's so funny <laughs> well and and somebody again as somebody that lived there couldn't have happened to a nicer yeah. guy <laughs> and that's, that's the thing. all like, i'm gonna say about we it we also have to talk about how the the reason this story broke is because it was over a picture of him with a cup that may or may not have had alcohol. Yeah. And then it snowballed into some dude just blowing his wife's back out while he was in the corner <laughs> clapping. Well, and the picture was him next to a woman that we now know he definitely was not having sex with. That's true. Because okay. he was watching someone else have sex with her. It was what? It was a, um, oh, a trailer park boys themed yeah. party. <laughs> Which makes it even funnier. Well, we, we, are, we are one bathroom tile away from... He had a wide stance. Yeah. Oh, no. Uh, we got to do a whole episode just on that. I am just going to slowly read the police report in its entirety. <laughs> and, we're, and nobody's going to laugh. Just Next a, week on the Patreon. It'll just be like the Minneapolis pop, Airport congressional kerfuffle. Yeah. <laughs> Popcorn Rob. And then I handed him... He, he, he handed me his business card and said, don't you know who I am? <laughs> they had to go get his Dude, ass. <laughs> uh, it's it's five minutes and we you haven't even told you what to get a blowjob in an airport bathroom. <laughs> so we doing this, sir? <laughs> tap, 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 tapping on heaven's floor. Oh, God. I'm so sorry. All right, let's get down to brass tacks. Oh, my God. Yeah, so uh, today it is Kyle's mandate. It is, and, and today's topic is definitely not a cuckold. No, no. He, he is. He wears many hats, but he, that is not one of them. He, he likes <laughs> sleeping with other men's wives. Yeah. <laughs> quite the opposite. Uh, quite the opposite of old uh, JMJ. He, God, he would be referred Falwell to as John around. Bull. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Pierre Delectico. <laughs> what was the uh, What was Anthony Weiner's sexual code name? Carlos Danger. Carlos Danger. Thank you. Uh, Which one was Ron Mexico? Ron Mexico was Michael Vick. Michael Vick. Oh, God. Back before he was killing the dogs. Uh, Technically, actually. Yeah, it was probably uh, during. During. Great. Yeah. Well, awesome. Okay, back on track. Still doing my job here. Uh, Yeah, we're talking about uh, Ian Fleming, prolific British author, uh, famed intelligence agent, journalist, General Gadabout, and Lothario, uh, best known for his role in fighting the Nazis in World War II through covert means, and his creation. Of no other than the character of James Bond. Yep, the man himself. Uh, we are uh, pulling from a variety of sources here. Uh, Kyle, you want to talk about some of your primary sources yeah, first? Yeah, so I mostly stuck to one. Uh, my primary source on this was Ian Fleming by Andrew Lissette. Uh, nearly 500 pages, the author painstakingly takes us through every step of Ian's life. It's kind of hard to recommend as a breezy read, but if you really want to deep dive into today's subject matter, I highly recommend it. I will say this. The amount of reading I've had to do for this podcast in the past, my heart bleeds. Uh, yeah, okay. Did they describe every drink that your previous characters have ever consumed? It's, it was like the Aeneid, but for alcohol. I mean, they described they described a, uh, well, a pudding recipe in the uh, 
in the Heaven's Gate book, but no no cocktails, no. Yikes. I think I know the grooming wow. habits of every soon, woman man. Ian Fleming has ever slept with. My. Wait, wait, okay. When you say group, when you say that's why the, that's why the book is fourteen hundred pages. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh yeah. So my primary source was the life of Ian Fleming, creator of James Bond by John Pearson. This was one of those bios that's sort of written immediately after somebody dies. I think the book came out in sixty-seven or sixty-eight, a few years oh, wow. after his death. No, I'm pretty sure it wasn't. Maybe like one more year after that. Nineteen. 19- 69? <laughs> nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Boo, boo, boo. We are 12. <laughs> uh, I watched a fantastic BBC documentary. It was called uh, Ian Fleming, Where Bond Began. Mm-hmm. And the most impressive part of the whole thing is that it is hosted by no other than Joanna Lumley. Oh, uh, yes. yes. Former Bond girl. I was actually yeah. going to. I, I was actually going to <laughs> also mention that as that. my source. Also absolutely fabulous as well. Uh, well, <laughs> yeah. No. But I, like, I don't think AbFab <laughs> doesn't Fab. doesn't play quite as well with. I don't know. If there's an Ian Fleming tie, but well, there might be. Yeah, that's I feel not, like he would have liked. There's it, not a lot of overlap on that Venn diagram. Well, I was I was going to actually mention the same source, but I was also going to say that I also read a book, and I think it was the wrong spy book. It was Penis Bags, a uh, penis. Was, Swedish made penis is, larger pumps oh, and you. Oh that yes, by by, by my Aust- bag baby. <laughs> that's my bag baby by Austin Danger Powers. <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I, I didn't mean to flub up the title, but yeah. yes, Austin Nature uh, Powers and it, wrote it. should it, be noted uh, that for uh, more than 30% of the allotted time, uh, I did research on the wrong person. Yeah, what were some of your sources about uh, Gummy I used, Broccoli? I used a, a couple sources on Albert Broccoli, so uh, I am ready for the next we're episode. We're tapping you in for, for his portion of this. Well, I, remember, it's only 30% of an episode. <laughs> All, right. All right. So yeah, it's, uh, it's Kyle's turn. Kyle? I felt like I was in college again. Take it away. Ian Lancaster Fleming was best known as an author, but he was also a journalist, stockbroker, intelligence officer, sadist, publisher, cad, traveler, black sheep, husband, father, patriot, and of course author. In his most famous creation, the British... Rob North, see all of the above. (laughs) He just just kind of tooled around and did rich guy stuff. Yeah. In his most famous creation, the British secret agent James Bond, Ian wove the experiences, peoples, and passions of his life into a modern thriller, blending the morality of a mythic hero with the dirty, complicated ambiguity of modern international affairs. While Ian colored his characters with exper- his character with experiences from his own life, Fleming was no James Bond, though the story of the man behind the legend is well worth telling. To fully understand Fleming... It's crucial to take a peek at the family line before him. Man, we he, got a whole thesis statement. Holy we do? shit. Wow. <laughs> I told you. I went. I, I think I wrote a like, academic paper. Well, this is all good until Kyle starts reading out the footnotes. <laughs> <laughs> it was hard not to write them in. Ian's grandfather, the Scotsman Robert Fleming. Yeah, Scottish Rob. Go figure. No, no, no. I'm just looking at your computer to see if you actually did the whole thing in MLA format. <laughs> 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 was a self-made investment pioneer, American railroad financier, and the eventual founder of the Robert Fleming Bank. Ian's father, Valentine Val Fleming. Well, hold on. Let's talk about the Robert Fleming Bank for a second. Okay. because I wanted to talk about the guy's name is fucking Valentine Fleming. We'll, like, we'll, get, we'll yeah. get to that. We'll get to Val. Yeah. But, uh, so, <laughs> Come next. <laughs> uh, so, like, Robert... Uh, the merchant. So Robert Fleming and Company was a merchant bank, which meant that it was a bank that dealt exclusively with businesses. It mm-hmm. didn't deal in personal banking. It was still around in... 2002, the, it sold for $7 billion. To, to Chase Manhattan. Yeah. And then to Disney. <laughs> <laughs> so it was... 
so yeah, so it was around for a while, and uh, and yeah, the Scottish American Investment Company that they also that was also founded uh, or co-founded by Robert co-founded, Fleming, yep, was uh, it, yeah dealt mostly in railroad construction and uh, logistics, I believe. Robert Fleming was a huge part of the financing of the American railroad system. Mm-hmm. It was absolutely tremendous part of it. We would not have had the railroads we had at the time period without yeah. his direct intervention. Yeah, American railroad construction kind of went through a series of booms, like the the uh, post Civil War boom. There was that first railroad boom in the eighteen forties yeah. and fifties. There was another construction boom of railroads in the eighteen nineties, and it was Robert Fleming that was partially responsible for yeah. quite a lot of that. And he was a self-made man. I mean, he he kind of came in the Carnegie mold, where mm-hmm. he. Worked as a clerk with a business. Yeah, he had a lower middle class existence in Scotland. The owner noticed his skill set, kind of tapped him and took him into his wing. And, you know, a few decades later, he did all this. And he took off And then he used artillery to kill his his striking (laughs) employees. As was the style at the time. As was the style. (laughs) As was his want. (laughs) All right. Uh, Ian's father, Valentine, or Val as he uh, preferred to go by. I'm not calling him Val. No, I'm calling him, yeah, Valentine. It's Valentine. It's Valentine. It's delightful. I don't care if it says Valentine, you know, let's change it right now. He was, uh, <laughs> he was a sort of well-off young man, who, or man of wealth, who, uh, who kind of did everything right by the book. Uh, Oxford education, military service. He became a conservative MP in parliament. Uh, eventually married, uh, I, I am not Rob, so I'm going to slaughter these names. I do not apologize. Evelyn Beatrice St. Croix. Rose. St. Croix, yeah. Uh, in 1906. Yeah, she was uh, she was known as a very flamboyant socialite. She was said to be an absolute knockout. Although, turn of the century England, <laughs> what flamboyant yes. socialite means is yeah. she actually she, she laughed out loud at people's jokes. I don't know. Yeah. She uh, she thought very highly of herself. Uh, vain, frivolous, snobbish. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the source kind of contrasts uh, her Irish heritage. With, that would definitely uh, end up rubbing, with, rubbing off yeah. on her kid too. Yeah. And, and it does. Uh, Ian is definitely a product of both of these individuals. Yeah, she just spent most of her time at parties where everybody laughed like this. <laughs> yeah, this whole story beginning to end is going to be just <laughs> annoyingly aristocratic. It's just going to be it me is. going... <laughs> yeah, the... The, the, the sound, Monopoly guy was there. The, the, the sound theme for today is... <laughs> well, the punchline of the joke was... He used a salad fork instead of his main fork. <laughs> yeah. No, this the fam- these family trees are two by fours. The, I, I, they had actual blue blood. Fleming <laughs> owned more homes than so I had toothpaste tubes. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Peter Fleming, uh, Ian's older brother, is born on May 31st, 1907, wasting absolutely no time. Ian was born May 28th, 1908, in Get Mayfair. It. Uh, shortly after the birth, the family moved into the larger Irish twins. pit house yeah. in Hampstead. Episiotomy? What episiotomy? <laughs> <laughs> so for our locals, the pit house is kind of fun because it was named for William Pitt, who mm-hmm. lived there for a time, which is clearly Pittsburgh's namesake. Uh, two more brothers would follow, Richard in 1911 and Michael in 1913. Uh, for a family of great wealth and social status at the time, this was a very much a transitional period in Britain. If you've ever watched Downton Abbey, this is exactly the time period we're talking mm-hmm. about. You know, great up social upheaval. You have the landed class trying to maintain its power. Wait a minute. Point of order. Who actually watches Downton Abbey? I watched every episode. I have not seen the movie yet. It's phenomenal. My brother-in-law loves it. It's way better than I wanted it to be. I it's had to super get four step knife point to watch it and pound it every second. I love yeah, it. Yeah. Like, I expected it to be, like, super dry and horrible. And no, it's tremendous. I wish. I, yeah. 
It, it ain't Tiger King, but it's a hell of a watch. <laughs> <laughs> you guys have obviously spent too much time unemployed. <laughs> I, well, well, I watched it like it's illegal for me to go to work. Yeah. The series <laughs> ended like half a decade ago. Yeah. I was dating someone that didn't let me have a social life, though. Cut. There's that. Focus. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's Kyle wistfully. Like, it just kind of zones out. <sighs> Val, mm-hmm. did, Val saw himself as a defender of Burton's influence and affluence uh, and called men like Winston Churchill a uh, personal friend. Uh, from an early age, uh, Ian struggled to escape his older brother's shadow. Uh, in contrast to the studious Peter, Ian quickly gained a reputation as a prankster. While spending time at St. Ives with the family, Ian would find himself drawn to its beaches, coves, caves, in search of hidden treasure, uh, a drive that would stick with him for most of his life. Um, 1914, Ian is sent to the Drumford School, a preparatory institution on the Isle of Purbank in Dorset. While operated by a jovial headmaster uh, and an adventure yarn-reading wife, Drumford was brutal by all counts, but honestly sounded pretty fucking terrible. Yeah. Uh, bad oh. food, harsh discipline, bullying was rampant. Um, he was sent there at the age of six. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And that, that's what the aristocracy did back then. Yeah. You, a you, your kid tiny... got old enough to tie his shoes, and you sent him off to a hellhole for a decade. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then send them off to another series of hellholes until they came out and fucked themselves dead. Uh. I mean, I get it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, Ian found solace in his older brother's protection, who was also there, obviously. Uh, he relished afternoons in the school's swimming hole. Uh, with the start of World War I in 1914, Val was deployed with C Company of the Queen's own Oxfordshire Hussars? Uh, Hussars. Hussars. Thank you where he rose to the rank of major. Uh, on May 20th, 1917, Val is killed by a German shell during the bombardment of Guillemont Farm on the Western Front. So the, the Oxfordshire Hussars were a cavalry regiment, uh, which was kind of a prestige posting for a lot of uh, upper-class Englishmen because the cavalry was still considered to have the, the dash and the bravado of a time gone past. Fortunately, if you know anything about the First World War, you know that by the end of 1914, it has bogged down to static trench warfare. So what's the cavalry going to do? Where are they going to go? The Queen's Own Oxfordshire Hussars, like many uh, cavalry regiments, end up being assigned as a combination of logistics troops and would spend time as infantry in the trenches. So Val writes a ton of letters at the time. Yeah. Uh, the ones to his sons really glorify his exposure. Uh, you know, He insists that you know they're fighting a good fight, that everything's fine, he's comfortable. The letters he wrote to his personal friends uh, oh, yeah. paint a horrifying picture of trench warfare. Yeah, they're not. That's not an uncommon story, and that's something that's really fascinating. And I, I can't think enough about or the kinds of letters that these guys write. Because yeah. whenever you're not being gassed by the Germans, you're writing letters. It's the only thing you have to do, you know, that and get awful, awful diseases. Mm-hmm. But the fact that these guys were basically writing in character. Yeah, the mm-hmm. whole time, like the letters yeah. to children have like and, little drawings and shit. And this is yeah. any person that we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about this. Like, if you want to follow the life of Tolkien, another another author oh, yeah. who served in the mm-hmm. First World War, the letters to yeah. children I was about were to say, whimsical stories I, about hobbits and elves, and the letters to his friends were about how he's constantly thinking about yeah. killing himself. But I was about to say, if you are on the Western Front in the First World War, you are in Mordor. Yeah. Oh a, yeah. A battlefield yeah. is the worst place on earth to be pretty much at any given time, and this is possibly one of the top five worst battlefields in history, if not the worst. The land is still largely destroyed. Yeah, yeah. and every technique they used is now a war crime. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, well, and, and it kind of makes sense of 
the letters that he was sending, particularly at home, of "We're fighting the good fight." That's very British. Mm-hmm. Step up, weapon, all that. I mean, these were well, yeah. Keep it up, son. You know, these were go in and patriotic get good people because you know we're fighting. You know, yeah. he's in, he's encouraging his son, just like you were talking about with the, the hobbits, the whimsical stories. Yeah. You have to king and country and tea and cricket and back to Blighty by Christmas. Val was very alive, or very aware he probably wasn't going to leave this fight. And he wanted his sons to follow in his tradition, to be true patriots, to keep with the aristocracy, to protect their mother. And he did what he had to to try to push that. And it's something that Ian kind of struggles with. Death turns Val into this saint figure that he holds above him for the rest of his life and has trouble kind of measuring against. Well, I have I have a statistic here that um, according to the Imperial War Museum, the Queen's own Oxfordshire Hussars, between 1914 and the end of the, the last combat they saw at the end of the Amiens Offensive in 1918, they took 377% casualties, meaning the amount of casualties that regiment took over the course of the war was 377% of their full complement. Of roughly 750 men. So there's supposed to be 750 men in this unit. They take 2,900 casualties over the course of the war. Wow. And this and was... It's not, it's not uncommon. Not uncommon. And this not, was not a not posting you wanted. This was a d- detachment you wanted it to be a, a part of. It was a prestige posting. <laughs> Fuck. Yeah. Uh, I will say this, though, on a lighter note about, Valen- uh, about Valentine Fleming. Fantastic mustache. Oh my god! You could attach a handle on this thing and <laughs> sweep floors with it. It was magnificent. Like you can't even call it a mustache. You have to call it a mustache. Like yep. it's it was not a Raleigh fingers. If anybody not thinking. full Raleigh it was fingers. not that. It was the one that goes from like nose to chin. It was like like yeah. Sam Elliott's mustache. You good? Yeah, jo- uh, yes. Joshua Chamberlain. How, yeah. How, how far? How far out though was it? Shoulder pad? No, oh, no it was it pretty was a, tight. It, it was tight. It was a standard mid-level officer's regulation mustache in terms of width. So yeah, so about just, a centimeter beyond the limit. It still okay. fit under a gas mask. Okay. It probably at one that point it was sense. probably now much that I think about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, at one point he may have handlebarred it for all I know. But oh yeah. Like, hmm. But yeah, I mean, all the pictures that I've ever seen. Yeah, it's, it's, it's trimmed pretty, because yeah, it's pretty yeah. trimmed. You're getting mustard gas. Yeah, all the fucking time. But. Yeah, he was. Yeah, but so he ends up being killed on the twentieth of May, nineteen seventeen. Uh, awarded the Distinguished Service Cross posthumously, and and that's the thing too is uh, World War One was the last war where the wealthy died at the rates of the poor. Yeah, yeah, really. I mean, it wasn't the last war where the upper class did die in combat. That was mostly World War Two. Mm-hmm. But so, I mean, an entire generation. Of Britain's upper class males, young upper class males, was eviscerated oh, by yeah. the war. And it was there was no talk of escaping it. I mean, it was your duty. It to was your and duty. Country. Yeah, you there was, did it, and you did it willingly. There, there was, was no nobody, fucking bone spurs. You. Yeah, we're not talking draft deferments, nothing like that. I mean, you went to war because it was what was expected of yeah. you. Now, maybe you ended up with a cushy posting, but you wanted at this point before when the war for the upper class is seen as a grand adventure, you want to be at the front. Well, that's yeah. a, one of the stories in. in, in, in uh, Winston Churchill's a personal hero of mine, and um, after his after the failure of his plan at Gallipoli, <clears throat> excuse me, after his fail failure at Gallipoli, he resigned. He not only resigned his commission with the Admiralty, but he volunteered, and he was a person of means. Yeah, he volunteered again as a. Um, 
as a junior officer and fought on the front lines and it, it's thought that the reason that he did that was because of guilt over yep. um, the Gallipoli campaign. Okay, I just I just pulled this one up. So uh, out of a population, this is just in the UK, out of a population of 45.4 million people, uh, 744,000 combat deaths, uh, total military deaths is 887,000, civilian deaths are 17,000, uh, increase in civilian deaths due to malnutrition and disease, not including the Spanish flu, 107,000. Yeah. So that's over a million. Um, it's uh, what one one well, million it, it, eleven thousand died this, in, in the UK yeah, and the colonies. To put this in a little perspective, in terms of the male population, fighting age male population, mm-hmm. one of every five men mm-hmm. who went off to World War Two mm-hmm. or World War One, excuse me, from the British Army didn't make it home. Yeah. The rates are higher for the Germans, the French, the Russians, mm-hmm. the Ottomans. The Austro-Hungarians. It's, it's, it's two awful. and a quarter percent of the population. Yeah, period. It's completely insane. And, and that's not including the wounded. There were almost two yeah. million wounded. Yeah, out of forty-five million. The wounds million. in two, that conflict were yeah. horrific. Yeah, two, it's two all and a quarter, hot shrapnel or yeah. spikes dropped to from get, biplanes. To give you two and a quarter percent relative to the U.S. population today, that's like the U.S. going to war and losing seven point five million men. Yeah, they had forty-five dead. million people dead. And that's just the dead. Yeah, yeah, so that's that's eleven and a half million. Women. And this all plays into Ian Fleming's budding awareness and consciousness. Oh, absolutely. Um, and actually, there's another uh, document I found from the Imperial War Museum that states that there was a massive shortfall of English counterbattery fire that day hmm. during the German bombardment. So it is entirely possible that Valentine may have been killed by friendly fire. Oh, jeez. Again. Not uncommon. There were faulty propellant charges being used by the artillery regiments in the area. Still not uncommon. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, fair. Pat Tillman. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so let's, uh, let's so, move on. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, whenever you start reading about the First World War, ladies and gentlemen, anybody who is listening, you definitely understand why you see the British with their poppies. Yes. You yeah. definitely oh, get yeah. it. As Every bad year. as it was here, and it was bad here. Like, don't get me wrong. Not to mention like, Canada, I, Australia, South Africa, every really, Commonwealth country. America really can't. We, we've never had... I don't know. Stop me if I'm wrong. I don't think there's anything equivalent in our history to that kind of level of population death. Civil war. Civil war. Civil war. Civil war. Civil war. Technically, they were fighting themselves. Yeah, because it's all American casualties. And yeah. not that that doesn't count, but I think it's a slightly different mm-hmm. situation when it's an internal conflict versus an yeah, external. Yeah, as far conflict. as as far as scale, the world wars are a little bit different. But like, as far as like the number of men deployed, the uh, combat casualties yeah. and wounding Vietnam was no no walk in the park. Korea was incredibly bloody. Yeah. Oh, it's incredibly but wait, bloody. But you also have to combine the casualty levels with the environment, the yes. battle environment. Oh, it God. was like nothing else ever seen. No. And um, hopefully never again. Also, so when Valentine died as a state, uh, was cleared, it was valued at the modern equivalent of 16 million English pounds. It's about $20 million. Yep. Boku uh, bucks. The estate itself was locked in a series of trust. Um, Eve was actually not allowed to remarry if she wanted to keep access to her annual payments, uh, although she did get the family homes. Mm-hmm. So, yay her. Uh, you mentioned Churchill before. He actually wrote Val's uh, obituary. I did not know that. I didn't know that either. Yeah. Yeah, th- I mean, this is a small clique, really. I mean, everybody's oh, yeah. connected. In they the all knew. And it, and, it, and it works for the family throughout their lives. The, their connections are wired. Largely, yeah. why they all got where they got. Oh, also, small. the obituary was just full of swear yeah. words, just covered in <laughs> cigar burns and scotch, yeah. scotch yeah. rings. Yeah. Yeah. Fleming actually framed it and kept it in every place he ever lived. Yeah, that's pretty. Um, so I, I assume it still exists. Small, uh, small, probably. 
point of interest huh. about one of the family homes. Uh, they had a place in Sutton Courtney in Oxfordshire uh, called the Abbey. About a decade ago, on the grounds of the Abbey House, or on the old grounds of the Abbey House, they found the largest Anglo-Saxon settlement ever discovered in Britain. Wow. That's, that has nothing to that do was, with the story of Ian Fleming. No, it's just, just super, that's whenever, That was during the drought, right? Mm-hmm. Whenever all, all the, everything just... Everything started showing up yeah. on, the, on aerial photos. Yeah, yeah that's, that's <laughs> fucking crazy. <laughs> yeah. It's so cool. It's uh, so cool. And it's, they and it's, found a king. They just found a king. They, <laughs> yeah. like, they, they were building like an apartment complex. They're like, uh-oh. Huh. <laughs> How do you well, know that's a he's lot a king? Of shiny. Yeah. <laughs> How do you know he's a king? And go shit all over him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Yeah, uh, European history is fucking so weird, guys. It all is. right, it's great. So I believe we were at uh, Durnford Prep. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. So He's six. That's how far along we are in the story. We're gonna jump ahead a tiny bit, in uh, because uh, because you can only talk so much about uh, them all getting their shit kicked in and eating terrible food. Mm-hmm. Uh, Let's move I, to his next phase of getting yes. his shit kicked in and eating <laughs> terrible food. But in he 19- had more fun this time. Oh, he had way more fun at this one. In 1921, Ian enrolls in Eton College in Berkshire, uh, where he excelled at athletics. Uh, was a high jumper, uh, track. Uh, actually, did exceptionally. I, I, I just have to interject. It's Berkshire. <laughs> My dad's from the UK. I have to. I have That's to be. That's why you're here. That's why you're here. I'm going to keep murdering things. Uh, he had very little love for academics, yeah. though. Uh, Ian's Ian's priorities at Eton uh, remained firmly on his pursuit of women and his nightly joy rides because he was the one student on campus who had a car. So here's the thing about Eton. Eton is so he was the, the one school. man on campus that had a back yeah. seat. Yeah. <laughs> so so it's called Eton College, but it's for it's for high school age boys. Yes. It's boys only, of course. It's a boarding school, and Eton is the place to go. Mm-hmm. If you were in the upper class and your son didn't attend Eton, your son wasn't shit. I mean, the place is ancient. It was founded in 1440, I think. Um, and it's, yeah, uh, it is still the primary place you want to get into if you're an upper class English boy. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, but you mentioned he was good at athletics. He was awarded the Victor Ludorum Award, <laughs> uh, which is Latin for winner of the games. <laughs> Uh, he was also the editor of The Wyvern, the school yes. magazine. His first published writing was in something he himself put together. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually got advertisements for it and actually turned a tiny yeah. little profit. Uh, but yeah, the I, watched, I want to take a quick aside here. I watched a bunch of people when Game of Thrones was on absolutely lose their shit at each other on Twitter yeah. over what is a dragon and what is a wyvern. And they, it was, it was three days. It Dragons was amazing. have four limbs and wings. Wyverns have yeah, legs and wings. Correct. Yeah. Like, like a wyverns don't have forearms. Yeah. Yeah. Dragon yeah. has four legs, and people yeah. they freaked out. They Game lost of Thrones, their shit. They're dragons. So, so a chicken would be a wyvern. Giant lizard bat. Basically. Three giant dragon bat. Yeah. Fucking days. Kyle and I, Kyle and I fought some wyverns not long ago in our D and D campaign. So it. it <laughs> My character's a black dragon blood. How long has it been since you've had sex? <laughs> God, like six weeks. I'm dying. Wake up, Padre. Um, no, it's fine. We're gonna talk. About, <laughs> we're gonna talk about dude stuff here. Hang on. Woo! Uh, so to to how about him playing sports? Yeah, yeah but, sports ball. But he would. He he owned a car. He would sneak girls into the dorms all the time, which was a big no-no. The car had one of those things on the back, like at a deli, where you're taking numbers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and here, here was a big sticking point for school administrators. This is why the master of housing, which was the dude's title, <laughs> hated him so much. He claimed the mo- reason he hated Fleming the most was because Fleming wore hair oil. Yes. <laughs> he's walking around. He's 15. He's got brill cream in. Like he's, I don't he want got, fop, goddammit. I'm a dapper Dan man. He was a fancy boy. Well, 
two weeks. Fancy lad. God almighty, I hate those fancy lads. It'll be two weeks. Please, a goddamn geographical oddity. Two weeks from everywhere. Um, two, but yeah, he was he was yeah. the bad boy among the uh, the aristocratic the, the bad fancy lad. Uh, to to kind of upper crust the upper crust. He also joins Pop, which is kind of a high society club. Um, I I, 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 I I can't really think of any American comparisons. Yes. Private school. I mean, less hoity yeah. toity fucking bullshit. It's, yeah. <laughs> Those people are pure Baltic Avenue, but they're all, but they're all fourteen. <laughs> but they still laugh yeah. like that. Yes. Yeah, that's the thing. They are kids. Yeah, they are kids. <laughs> they are fifteen, sixteen, seventeen years old. But this is it's what's a, banged it's in skull their, and bones. Yeah. But they didn't have hair in their nuts. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, so this is what's banged in their heads from a young age. Is like this: these are the people you keep the company yeah. of. This is what you're here for: is to continue this sort of family lifestyle. And it's something Fleming uh, struggles with a bit. You want to get a bunch of hipsters steaming mad. Tell them this story. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, continuing that bad boy streak, uh, Ian actually withdraws a semester early in 1926. His and... mommy pulled him out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Evelyn yeah. intervened. Yep. Well, because the, she school does administ- the school administrators wrote her and said, get this kid the fuck yeah. out of here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, the perfectly logical place to put him next was... Uh, Eaton's Army Class Division, which was what they called a Crammer Course, uh, mm-hmm. run by a Colonel William Trevor to prepare prospective cadets. Yeah, it's a one-year for, preparatory yeah, course. for a military academy at Sandhurst. It's like JROTC. Yeah. Uh, Trevor expressed the eve that uh, Ian ought to make an excellent soldier, provided always that ladies don't ruin him. Oops. <laughs> uh, provided that ladies don't Okay, let's talk about it. We'll discuss later how that turned out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's uh, not patriarchal or anything. No, not Provided at all. Provided the, the ladies don't ruin him. Yes. <laughs> Isn't that what they said to you when they deployed you to Jacksonville? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to talk about it because uh, I, I, I ruined many a lady there. We only get the St. Pete in this episode. And that shit lives in you for a long, long time, Padre. <laughs> oh, you take it with you. Well, they of, have a shot for that. Speaking of. Now. Speaking of things that live <laughs> in I th- you. Actually I, actually, I think they have a shot on the commercials now. Oh, God. I love those commercials. Everybody's just like canoeing and shit. (laughs) Canoeing and shit, formation marching. Delightful. Um, (laughs) Embracing the politics of his father, Ian at this time assists during uh, a general strike uh, that May, uh, working to man uh, track signals uh, for railroads. Kind of like a yeah, exactly. I mean, they were they were scabs. But but the upper crust did it. It was mm-hmm. kind of this like you know for queen and country, king and country at the time. I need to stop saying queen. Uh, in the months before Sandhurst, uh, Ian uh, spends two months in Austria, uh, where he uh, spends two months sampling cafe life and the local women. Yeah, it's like his rich boy Rumspringa. Yes. <laughs> um, again, if you don't know what Sandhurst is, Sandhurst is the home of the Royal Military College. It still exists today. It's basically the British hmm. uh, military's equivalent of West Point. So he went to the equivalent of a Starbucks and said, I'll have a mocha and that blonde. I mean, honestly, not <laughs> more, more entirely less. inaccurate. Yeah. He rolls more, into more Austria. He's, uh, by all accounts, not all accounts, we have photos. He was an attractive man. Uh, yeah, good-looking dude. Yeah. In a, you know. In, a, in an old British kind of weird-looking way. Yeah. You know, like I mean, he Benedict always Cumberbatch looked like he was 20 Yeah, he's, he's 145 was, pounds of... He's 145 yeah. pounds of shillings and cigarettes. Yeah, yeah like but, how everybody wants to fuck good Doctor teeth. Who. 
I have no idea if he had good teeth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, a, a cadetship at Sandhurst was a big fucking deal. Yeah. Like, that was something that wasn't even guaranteed for those of means. Mm-hmm. Um, Ian wasn't dumb. He just hated school. Uh, so Ian arrives at Sandhurst September 3rd, 1926, uh, still very much in uh, Austria party mode. Uh, he quickly finds himself butting against college restrictions and craving solitude. He's someone who really liked privacy, yeah. his own space, which Got is not some trouble with his Derviner schnitzel. Yeah. Uh, so Ian plays fast and loose with the rules, uh, often literally just goes over the wall of the school at night to <laughs> hit up clubs, meet da, new women. Da, 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 da. Uh, <laughs> he also just jumps the motorcycle over and just, it just lands in a bar. Uh, quite a few times are he got we, his ass Are we talking back. about my favorite man? Do I need to prophesize <laughs> right now? <laughs> just lands in a bar full of apple-cheeked English country girls. Yeah, there, were, there were more than a few mornings where a fellow cadet had to drag his ass out of bed, throw him in a shower, and get him back oh, to yeah. the parade ground so he wouldn't get expelled on the spot. Well, did him a lot of good. Oh. Ian at the t- so Ian starts making an impression in London society. Uh, his good looks, private income, military uniform, making popular debutantes, debutantes ball dances. Debutantes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, though he himself greatly preferred the livelier nightclubs. Uh, at the time, he meets his first real love, uh, Peggy Bernard. Uh, but Ian uh, was an unreasonable person and fucked that up. Uh, he gets enraged that she uh, holds to a social commitment to go to a ball with another man. Ian promptly heads to a bar, beds a hostess, and catches gonorrhea, which at the time wasn't easy to shake off. Uh, so he's out of commission completely for two we, weeks. We've covered the venereal disease portion in our uh, yes. Siege of Charleston Harbor episode yeah. with, uh, with old Blackbeard. I mean, granted, the technology had moved on a little bit. A yeah, little bit. Yeah, it was, it was a Q-tip. It was two weeks yeah. and not, yeah. <laughs> it, it was a Q-tip <laughs> that they, they rammed up the, yeah, instead of the a The go-to giant. cure was no longer liquid mercury. Yeah. Oh, God. Uh, so, so Evelyn sees this as a sign that he's deeply unhappy. Um, using his bronchitis as an excuse, Ian resigns from Sandhurst completely in 1927. How uh, oh, it burns! I mean, and look, guys, all I got to say is, thank God for moldy bread. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it really stings when I cough. <laughs> and this was—I I mean, this was a sore spot for him for the rest of his life. This yeah. was something he never really admitted to in any. I mean, he's—he his excuse. As an adult, was very much military life in this type didn't suit me, so I you know, he, resigned he, of my own. He call. ended up getting around it, but he ended he ended up in a different branch than he thought he would. He's a yeah. fairly prideful, boastful man. There's no surprise yes. that he would never talk about this ever. Well, yeah. and he's the son of a glorious war dead. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, being incredibly similar beings, Evelyn and Ian take these failings incredibly personally, uh, and Ian begins to see himself as kind of the black sheep of the family especially contrasting to his older brother, Peter, who at this point is excelling in pretty much everything he touches. Uh, in what would turn out to be a stroke of genius, even rolls Ian at the Villa Tannerhof in Kutzbühel, Austria. How'd I do? Fantastic, yeah. man. That's pretty good. That's super right, good. Yeah. You're, you're way better with the, with the German than you are with the yeah. language you actually speak. Zu um, ist gut. Oh, that's fair. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so this is they decide Unexpected. to send him. They decide to send him abroad because <laughs> Evelyn has decided that she's going to prepare her baby boy for a career in the British Foreign Office and to prepare him in a place where he couldn't further damage the family's reputation. Yeah, kind of tough to do that from a thousand miles away. Um, but yeah, but the British Foreign Office is the equivalent to our State Department. It's Britain's main diplomatic service, and no organization at this time was considered to be better at diplomacy than the British Foreign yes. Office. It was. 
I mean, a, a lot of British upper class ended up with appointments at the Foreign Office. So this institution was set up less as a traditional school and more of a center of guidance under the Alderian uh, discipline, kind of a theory and um, I don't even really know how to describe it. It's basically it. individualized tutoring. Yes. There's no set curriculum. It's about, yeah, the Adlerian philosophy is based around focused education for the individual. So the uh, influence of the proprietors here is obvious. Uh, Ernum Forbes Dennis was a post-war passport officer who ran cover for MI5 and MI6 operations in Vienna. Uh, his wife, Phyllis Bottom, was a novelist. Uh, here Ian greatly improves his German and French language skills, gains a passion for winter sports in the picturesque setting, and partakes in free love among the local girls fascinated by the tall, if moody, Brit. Uh, Ian followed this with a brief stint at Munich University and then the University of Geneva, where he starts a love affair with Monique Penchant de Botens? Monique Penchot de Botens. There we go. There you go. Uh, daughter of a Swiss landowner, to who he's actually briefly engaged. Uh, Evelyn fucking hates this. Mommy steps in again. Uh, and uh, <laughs> Oh, Evie. Yeah. Essentially gives him the choice of my money and housing and connections in London versus your engagement. Threatened him with the cutoff. Yeah. He uh, didn't go with the cutoff. Huh. <laughs> Uh, so after this, uh, Ian performs respectfully at the Foreign Service admissions test, but failed to secure. <laughs> he a dumped Monique like a bag of trash. Oh yeah, no, he dropped the shit out of it. It was cold. It, it was. It really actually cold. haunted him. It, it, you know, he, yeah. he, he, it's something he seriously regretted and tried to reconnect with her multiple times. Oh, my, my heart bleeds for the man. Yeah, he did quite okay, kinda. Uh, so, so yeah, I mean, Ian did pretty well on this test. Um, the problem is, you know, generally a couple hundred people took it, and there were guaranteed positions for like four of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, following yet another disappointment, uh, and likely in part to uh, Eve's manip- er, you know, manipulations, he's hired as a sub-editor and journalist at Reuters. Well, so, before we move on with that, there are a couple authors who say that he may have deliberately bombed the test just enough to spite Mom. Hmm. That he didn't actually want to be work for the Foreign Office. Um, this was a little bit of his, uh, you know, teenage rebellion that happens at the age of twenty. <laughs> Five. <laughs> Finally well, see, rebelling against mom. Things, things are different then. It, well, it was either that or kill some chick in a bathroom in, in a motel. So Yeah, you have you basically yeah. have two options as a right. as a rich white kid. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry for inter- um, no, no, interrupting you're good. you. He's you're good. Affluenza. I actually hadn't read that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so he gets a job at Reuters in October nineteen thirty one. Uh, Ian does really well here. Uh, yeah. He immediately takes headed up by yeah. Sir Roderick Jones, uh, head of Reuters news agency, who was a friend of Evelyn's. Yeah, yeah. And this this theme keeps yeah. He, he rides family connections yeah. until the day he fucking dies. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so he takes the foreign assignments immediately, uh, it, running parallel to the Nazi Party's consolidation of power in Germany. Ian takes an assignment in Munich in July of 1932. Uh, essentially to uh, partake in as a navigator and write an article on uh, a really impressive automobile race, but it was kind of treated as a way to keep an eye on the technology at the time, what the Germans are mm-hmm. up to. Well, and he finds that he actually enjoys the work, and he's good at it. He's he's very good at it. He's very good at it. But yeah, Reuters and all the other major news agencies, too, were working hand-in-hand with the British Foreign Office and the British Foreign Intelligence Service. Oh, yeah. His... his, his Toe is into intelligence at a very, very young age. Um, he doesn't always see it that way, mm-hmm. but it, he's he's almost in a way being groomed by this by other parties. Forbes Dennis absolutely saw him as this when he was at uh, 
you know, his, the previous school. Um, so uh, following Munich, he goes to Switzerland. We were, we were on, we were outside Munich, on the edge of the Alps, <laughs> when the Nazis began to take hold. <laughs> By the way, I have to say right now, you are wearing. A Hawaiian shirt and a white bucket hat. It was the birthday present. I know. We're going for it. You are. If only. Like I said, I was. I said earlier that I was pissed at myself because I didn't bring my aviators. He was, and, and we didn't have a I long cigarette holder for you. He, he, he was literally in Munich for a car race. We're in backcountry. Yeah. <laughs> it's called Bavaria Hunter. It's called, it's called Bavaria Hunter. <laughs> but you see, you see, you actually see a lot of this where they would do these postings where you were there for one reason, but they really wanted you to keep an eye on something else entirely. We all have seen the man yeah. from Uncle. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so following Munich, he goes to Switzerland in March of 1933. Uh, they're explicitly to monitor the after effects of the Reichstag elections. Uh, later that year, he travels to Moscow to observe the Metropolitan Vickers Show Trial. Oh, where, yes. Uh, British businessmen are accused of uh, espionage by the uh, young Soviet Union. Yeah. Uh, Metropolitan Vickers was a, uh, a British engineering firm, and the Pittsburgh connection here, originally known as British Westinghouse. It was founded by George Westinghouse as the basically the British office of Westinghouse Incorporated. And then it became uh, Metropolitan Vickers in the late 20s, I believe. But uh, so, yeah, so six British engineers were accused of espionage because they were in the Soviet Union installing electrical uh, power plant equipment and the equipment ended up being faulty. Mm-hmm. So uh, and as we all know, British engineering is the hallmark, the absolute Cadillac of engineering technology. Mm-hmm. Everything, everything British is, is hyper reliable. Right. And we, we've come to know it as that to this very day. They're, they're well, lube. BMW stands for <laughs> British Motor Works, right? Yeah. <laughs> Listen, yeah. my British Honda only leaks in one spot. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so they end up having a, uh, a bit of a show trial. Uh, yeah. Highly, highly publicized. Uh, the six engineers are charged. They're found guilty of espionage, but they are released without further punishment mm-hmm. and expelled because yeah. the British government intervenes and threatens an embargo against a Soviet Union that massively needs foreign investment at this point. Yeah, It's basically a way for Stalin to shore up counter-revolutionary mm-hmm. shore up his oh, yeah. defenses against a brewing counter-revolutionary mm-hmm. movement yeah. <laughs> if nothing else the Soviet Union sure loved them some posturing yeah yes, well, it's, it's the same kind of thing that would lead to the purges yeah. uh, oh, God, the same yeah. thing that would lead to the assassination of Leon Trotsky this is just the very very this beginning is, this is, yeah this is a little before the five year it's a lot easier minutes. to punch yeah. at a foreign target than it is a domestic one to start exactly. these things off exactly um, Ian does Besides, loves ice, pi- yeah. ice picks are cheap mm. <laughs> Uh, Ian does really well in this environment. Uh, he loves kind of the competition of it. Everyone yeah, Leon Trotsky got first. the old basic instinct, didn't he? Yeah, he yeah, sure did. <laughs> yeah, he did. Less, uh, less spread thighs, though. Well, we don't know that. That's uh, true. <laughs> you, yeah. you weren't there. You can't prove it. <laughs> um, to the point, at one point, he literally severs phone lines to make sure that he's able to get be the first one to push the verdict out. Mm-hmm. Uh, he actually almost secures an interview with Stalin at the time <laughs> as well. This. I love this so much. Yeah, he tries to get an interview with Stalin. Stalin can't make it. Stalin writes him a very nice letter. Dear Ian, I am very, very <laughs> sorry that I cannot make our appointment, as I am shooting disobedient generals in head behind the back of government building. <laughs> like in The Simpsons when Lisa has the, the pen pal who's clearly replaced. <laughs> and the government has been replaced by the benevolent General Kroll. Long live Kroll. Sincerely, little girl. <laughs> That's pretty much what happens. So, so Reuters really appreciates its mm-hmm. effort, uh, and uh, you know his his 
his great journalism and caviar consumption rewards him with a tapeworm that he dubs his Loch Ness Monster. I have a tremendous tapeworm story, but it's super, it's like, it is one of the worst stories that I have. It was not my tapeworm. Uh, I will, we will talk about this off camera, but I want everybody at home. How about, how about we put it out for our Patreon subscribers? Ooh, Gosh. maybe. Just for as little as $1 a month. You can hear Chris's tapeworm story. I, before I post that, I have to make sure that the parties involved are, are fine with me telling this story. Anywho. <laughs> Well, hey, I got a tapeworm story too, but it's super long. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I'm 47. I had to do the dad shit. I like it. I like it. Uh, Bowing yet again to his mother's pressure, uh, Ian leaves Reuters and begins working for Colin Company Bank in October 1933 (laughs) with the expectation that he would be on the track for a partnership position. Uh, Ian has no real passion for stock brokering. Which He's is just really bad shocking. at it. Yeah, he was terrible. Yeah, he hated it. He lost the firm millions of yeah. pounds. He was really good with and the he wasn't social even side of it. <laughs> yeah. He was the guy to call when you needed someone wined and dined, hated actually stock brokering, and picked terrible investments. Yeah, yeah. It's like if the Wolf of Wall Street sucked at his job. That's the um, sort of thing that would, earn, that would earn him a $15 million bonus today. But like, Oh, yeah. No, no, no. I mean, he took it because he thought it would be the gateway into a position at his grandfather's company. Yeah. He wanted a job at Robert Fleming. Well, mom wanted if him he to actually have a job had to be yeah, a no, broker, no, he would on. be John Favreau yelling at guys in cubicles trying to sell, <laughs> trying to get money from uh, little old ladies on yeah. penny stocks. Oh God! Uh, so Ian takes the high society London. He embraces golf and gambling, particularly bridge, and pursues sex with gusto. Uh, as a former Reuters co-worker was quoted, he merely wanted a job which would give him leisure and money enough for an entertaining life. Uh, when a change of admit, don't we all? Yeah, I mean that's yeah, why I wake up in the morning. I don't see anything wrong with it. Yeah, like there's there's nothing about this that I, I'm disagreeing with. Yeah, exactly. Nothing. I kind of I like, see no lies. I mean, I'd be a terrible stockbroker too. I'm with him. I, I think yeah, I kind of yeah. like this guy. Oh, 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 man! You mean you like you like Ian Fleming, the guy who just fucked everyone and drove expensive cars and was a spy and he was super rich? Oh man, and, Kyle, boy, you really and, went, you really and, reached for that one and yeah. did Way to nothing take a stand. to earn it. Way to pick. Yeah. Yeah, way to, no, that's not. That's not. Yeah, way, guy, it, way to pick a very bold hill to die on. Yeah. <laughs> they gave him a car to go to an all boys school. Like, oh man. Excuse me, Kyle. So far. So yeah. okay, that's fair. That is more fair. Uh, with yeah, the change I just, of- I just can't believe it. Like, I'm shocked. I am absolutely astounded that you would pick Hugh Hefner with worse teeth <laughs> is the guy you wanted to fucking be. Get out of here with that shit. Get out of here with these soft takes. <laughs> this is the kitchen. We only cook up spicy shit in the kitchen. <laughs> soft. Soft. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> uh, with the change in administration at Cullen Company limiting his upward growth, in 1935, Ian takes a position with Rowan Pittman, uh, building the bachelor lifestyle that would encompass a huge chunk of his life. Uh, Ian rents a large flat in a converted school, which doesn't happen in Pittsburgh at all. Mm. No, you never hear about that. Hires a Jewish refugee to decorate it and begins filling it with a uh, quite impressive book collection. Uh, a tall, dark, masculine bachelor pad. Uh, Ian generally entertained two audiences here. Club men for weekly bridge and a steady stream of women. Okay, I'm with him on that. Uh, well, the reputation as oh, a... When lo- we say club, we don't mean... Like, we don't mean... No, we, we mean, mean exclusive <laughs> membership... <laughs> exclusive membership <laughs> club. Like, they talk about private clubs in the U.S. These people would look at a VFW and go, burn it down. Yeah. These people would look at at Oakmont Country Club and tell them to burn it down. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, 
So his reputation as a Lothario has stuck, and it's not it's not unfair, but it was a little more complicated than that. Uh, a little. The humiliating end to his relationship with Peggy, uh, and the regret following his mother's orders with Monique left Ian internalizing feelings. Of, I hear you dumping me because mommy said so. I mean, liter- <laughs> quite literally. Quite literally. Uh, Is it because your mom? <laughs> no, I'm no. just we're just a baby. It's it's not it's not you. It's me. We're just in different it's places. It's not you. It's mom. I mean me. <laughs> so this left Ian internalizing feelings of disgust and inadequacy. Uh, this is one of the areas that he gets closer to his literary character than in most other aspects of his life. Ian boasts that he was going to be... What, he, he didn't go to fucking space? <laughs> <laughs> that never happens in the books. No, no, Moonraker, he does not go to space. Uh, it's it was... in Kent. Yeah. It's uh, it... Don't get me wrong, if you've ever been to Kent, it is like another planet. <laughs> uh, yeah, they're just trying to blow up London, as they are in all of his novels. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Ian boasts that he was going to be quite bloody-minded about women from now on. <laughs> Uh, and would take what he wanted without any scruples at all. Uh, Mary Packenham, uh, a friend from this era who managed to keep their relationship platonic, saw his vain, prima donnaish behavior as, shockingly, a reflection of his mother. He looked at them as a schoolboy does. They were remote, mysterious beings who you never hope to understand, but if you're clever, you can occasionally shoot one down. Your British accent's on point, I gotta I'm not trying, you. I'm not trying. <laughs> let, me, let me make that super goddamn clear. Uh, I spent way too much time writing and not enough time practicing my Brit. Uh, despite his regular patience... Fresh in your tea, Captain! <laughs> just, like, really lean into I it. No. Oh, like, really? Oh, dear, oh, dear. What a beautiful building. Wouldn't it be a shame if something were to happen to it? So I looked up how to do Cockney when we did the train robbery, and that's yeah. just what all the YouTube instruction was. Yep. Uh, Jesus Christ, the dog's awake. Make with a Kyle Hurry. Oh, no. All I know is Henry Higgins. Uh, despite his regular practice, Ian put little effort in the actual courting process. Once invited over and greeted by his maid, Ian would keep his guests waiting as he finished some sort of project, often suggesting his collection of French pornography to occupy them. An uncreative dinner would generally follow, usually some version of sausages. Uh, he was not bond in terms of food taste. <laughs> would you, would for the main like course to... and dessert. <laughs> would you care for a showing of du fille tasse? <laughs> For, for, for our non-Francophile listeners, that is French for two girls, one cup. Oh, God. And which... God, fuck you. <laughs> yeah, you did to Kyle. Yeah, you get what mad at me, but our him. listeners who speak French are rolling in their fucking oh, language just, right now. They, uh, hang on, let's give them a minute. Them? Let's give them a minute to get caught up. Okay, Jacques, you with us? All right, buddy, here's you. So it was Muriel White who seemed to suffer the most from this lifestyle. Uh, Almost a prototype Bond girl, Muriel was attractive with a halo of blonde hair. She was athletic, lively. She came from money, which Ian appreciated. Uh, Moves she went by never had to work, but occasionally did so as a model. Uh, Photos are still out there. Um, I know the era doesn't always uh, hold up well, but she was quite stunning, really. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, you definitely know why all the Bond girls look the way they do after you see her picture. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Well, Ian's... Uh, interest in her was limited, uh, apparently to uh, what he considered her lack of intellectual ambition. She adored him, uh, a situation he was happy to exploit. Another female friend noted he loved to have her encountering slave. Uh, her family recognized this, uh, though Ian did escape her brother's attempt to intervene with a horsewhip at his doorstep. Uh, in 1939, Ian... When only Deanna Jones on him. <laughs> I mean, he, he shows up at his flat's door. Ian is with Muriel out of town. Now, a, a horse whip is a string of leather. Yeah. It's a two-foot string of leather on the end of a two-foot wooden handle. 
You're thinking bullwhip, Yeah, you're man. thinking bullwhip. Come on, Padre. <laughs> what horse? did I say about soft takes? This podcast is, is softer than baby shit, and I'm sad about it every single second. I'm disappointed in you. I'm disappointed in you, and I'm disappointed in you. I'm, just I'm saying, sorry. No, I'm batting under 200. No, I'm just saying I, a horse whip is... I'm taking your beer. I'm just saying a horse whip is the most aristocratic choice oh, of yeah. weapon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, this shit he was probably using for polo six hours beforehand. Yeah. Fleming hated riding. I mean, he had it to hand. <laughs> Uh, so actually, um, Muriel was like, like champion polo rider. Um, so that explains a lot. That, expi- I, that explains a lot. <laughs> I actually want to explain myself. Some of us here don't have a lifestyle that knows the difference between a bull whip and a horse whip. But <laughs> hey, not many I'm horses just on the backs in the navy. You know how you know the difference. You know how you know what a horse whip is if you'd watch Downton Abbey. Y- um, you would. Yeah. You okay. Would. okay. You should. I'm just saying. It's, it's honestly that good. I'm just saying. <laughs> uh, in 1939, Ian also begins seeing Anne Cartier's O'Neill. Yeah, we're done with Housewife Corner. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, at this time, married to the third Baron O'Neill, and already in the midst of an affair was Esmond Harmsworth, who was the owner of the Daily Mail, which is probably every bit as good then as yeah, it I mean, it was, today. well, no. It, it, <laughs> although in the 30s, it was probably it was, the primary. It was. It, it was the. It was different. It was. <laughs> One of the top five primary newspapers in the Western world. I mean, it was huge. Yeah, he was an insanely powerful man yeah. to be connected to. Um, letters from this period give the appearance of an insatiable connection between the two, built around physical attraction, wit, mental teasing, quite possibly physical sadomasochism. Yeah. There's a lot of talk of spanking and whipping that wasn't coming from angry uh, brothers of other girlfriends. With a horse whip, Padre. A horse whip. Horse whip. Horse whip. He's, he's, he's that. That's the down. word of the week. Well, okay, just horse to prove that everything's word. connected, though. Third Baron O'Neill had lived in the room next to Fleming's at Eaton College. He was Fleming's next door neighbor at Eaton, and it, it, like it, it's and so and and Anne would have a bunch of other affairs over the course of her life, yeah. um, including uh, two labor MPs, including Roy Jenkins, who became a very very famous labor M, uh, Lee labor politician. Roy <laughs> mm-hmm. He was killed in combat. <laughs> Uh, he would end up, but he would end up being uh, Roy Jenkins would end up being one of Fleming's contacts at Bletchley Park, the the British intelligence service's main co-breaking establishment. Yeah. Uh, and he was, he was okay. Well, well, those two are getting over there. But here's the thing about Roy Jenkins: Roy Jenkins had just turned eighteen, and he hadn't even started his university education when he had started shagging Anne. Yeah, she she was. They, yeah, everybody was getting down to some nasty shit. Yeah, this, like fun. Like this a idea lot of, it was of a chaste British and, and we thought this was all yeah. Cardi is, B and Meg Thee Stallion. Mm. Huh. No, I mean these people knew how to have fun. Yeah, uh, utilizing his social connections and his spirits abroad, as well as subtle encouragement from Forbes Dennis, uh, who had returned from Vienna to work with refugees. Ian begins doing some freelance intelligence work, mainly filing reports to the Foreign Office while traveling for business. This brings Ian to the attention of the rapidly expanding British intelligence community. Uh, In 1939, as the war ramps up, Ian is called to have lunch with Admiral John Henry Godfrey at the Carlton Grill, which kind of serves as an unofficial interview. Rear Admiral, which is just a really appropriate title for everything that goes on here. Right. Yeah. Uh, So in July of that year, he's appointed to the special branch of the Wavy Navy, or the Royal Navy Volunteer Reserve, 
and joins uh, the Naval Intelligence Division properly uh, that following August. Biden's over just shaking his head. Yeah, I, I also <laughs> I have to, fucking reserves. <laughs> I, I also have to, I also have to say that uh, John Pearson speculates that Evelyn had been, um, shall we say, exerting influence over Rear yes, Admiral Godfrey. That was absolutely at the, time. the case. Well, um, not like oh, family friend. It's John Pearson thinks that they fucking. Yeah, I mean, that's... Well, as long as he's the rear admiral, he's he's not getting pregnant. So Ian doesn't just get a posting there. He becomes Godfrey's personal assistant. God, it's awful when he calls it the bilge. (laughs) Oh, no. And we know... We we giggled about rear admiral (laughs) when I was under the command of a rear admiral. Yeah. (laughs) Hey, listen, what you did in the Navy is your own business. We don't... It's not even something they talk about anymore. Hey, we... That Guys, question, that question look, got scribbled out, man. Chris Clinton saw Chris, the end of that. Chris, Rum we're, sodomy we're, in the lash, and Chris, that's just Monday. We're, ta- <laughs> we're talking about a dude that liked sausages and had one night of all-male company. Just saying. You know. Tuesday. <laughs> Tuesday. Uh, it's not gay <laughs> if it's Tuesday. <laughs> See, Ian becomes uh, Godfrey's personal assistant. Um, Room 39, which kind of serves as Godfrey's bridge, uh, had the energy of a newsroom. Uh, Ian performs as the director of naval intelligence's liaison to the outside world. His easy manners, social experience, and connections made him an ideal candidate for this and blends smoothly between officers, politicians, and businessmen. And he never really suffered from senior office veneration or senior officer veneration. Yeah. So when something had to be said, he didn't really give a fuck who he was saying it. If to. you've been around aristocracy well, your whole life, you're not that no, fussed by they people. Meant the position. military people didn't impress him. Yeah. In that in my sources, that's one of the things that kept coming up was that he wasn't a kiss ass. The only people but he was too were authors. He, he when it came to people that could could promote him. He never came across as a kiss ass. He came across as somebody that was energetic. He was a younger guy that had a lot of ideas yeah. and it it excited the upper echelon of mm-hmm. of, of authors and he, he he wasn't he wasn't brown nosing. He no. wasn't yeah. He knew how to, to carry himself. He knew how to work a room. Yeah, he was exactly. very, very charming. Well, yeah. he wasn't cripplingly depressed, but we'll get that later. It, yeah, that's, uh, that's but he could also he could also there. compartmentalize when he, he was could. working too. He could. But yeah, he uh, he operated under the code name Seventeen F. Um, yeah, he would work as a as a go between uh, because well, it, Godfrey was famously abrasive, so oh, you yeah. didn't want Godfrey talking to anybody if he didn't have to, <laughs> and uh, so. So Fleming ends up as this go-between, this liaison between all the primary intelligence services that worked with the Royal Navy. Uh, I mean, the Secret Intelligence Service, a.k.a. MI6, mm-hmm. um, MI5, the Interior Intelligence Service, the Political Warfare Executive, yep. uh, the Special Operations Executive, the SOE, which you'll definitely hear more about later, and the Joint Intelligence Committee, uh, which pulled everybody together mm-hmm. and shared that intelligence. And he was the liaison between Godfrey and the Prime Minister's staff. So with Godfrey's support, Ian finds uh, a fair amount of freedom to let his ideas grow, uh, and the creativity we later see in his thrillers makes itself known. 
uh, while published under Godfrey's name, the Trout Memo circulated. Well, hold on, we just have to say he started in he started at Godfrey's office in August of 1939. September 1st, 1939, Hitler invades <laughs> Poland. He's just getting settled in, and now the world is at war. Oh yeah, I mean he's he's immediately given a promotion. He's given yeah. he's a commander. That's Minor detail, <laughs> man. Uh, if that's if that's not a day when you check my... the morning, that's not a day when you check the morning briefing and just go, yeah, fuck. <laughs> oh. So, uh, the Trout memo, memo... And you know there was somebody that was sitting there going, oh. God, well, Hitler just did that? Just a slow news day. <laughs> oh, I'm going to have to cancel my dinner reservation. Well, I mean, you joke about it, but they were all super dialed into this. Yeah. Uh, and at the time, there was a huge conflict between the appeasement campaign and those looking for a more aggressive option, right. of which... Yeah, they also absolutely fell into. They already knew something and was it, coming. This man has been aggressively spying on foreign assets for, for almost yeah. a decade. I mean, yeah, it's nearly ten years. Like the British Naval Intelligence Service knew that the Germans were going to bombard Danzig. Yeah, they knew it to the minute. Mm-hmm. They knew it to the minute. The bombardment kicked off at five fifteen in the morning. They knew it was going to start at five fifteen. This in the morning. was the best the intelligence operation Danzig. in the world oh. at the time by a lot. The Americans right now were kicking their own fucking shit down the road. <laughs> I got something to say. Uh, (laughs) so the trout memo which was circulated in 1939 was almost certainly the work of fleming although it was published under godfrey's name the trout fisher casts patiently all day he frequently changes venues and lures it goes on to suggest various ways to fool or lure the enemy Uh, yeah i don't think we said that this the family spent a lot of their vacation time in scotland in in the hill in the hills and in the highlands of scotland especially when the kids were young especially when the kids were young so one of the most popular country sports in Scotland, especially amongst the rivers and the locks, is fly fishing, especially for lake trout and for river trout. It still so, is. Still it is. It yeah. hasn't changed. They, they've yeah, been fly fishing there for hundreds I of thought years, it was, quote, unquote, petting lambs. <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll get petting, to this. Petting lambs. See what you've got to do. They were rich enough Put they the had... Put the legs in your, in your whalies. They were rich enough they had maids to do that. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, seeing the potential in black propaganda, Ian devises plans to funnel counterfeit marks into Germany, airdrop pr- propaganda engraved coins, and helps build a network of pirate broadcasts into Germany to undermine Reich morale and confidence, including some close to home meant to damage the confidence of U-boat crews harassing Allied shipping lines. These were great. They were basically, <laughs> in German... Man, we welded those boats really shittily. They're yeah. not. Everyone's gonna die they, in there, right? They faked communiques between the engineering firms, basically saying, "Oh, we fucked up on that series." Of we also need to talk about how funny it is that uh, counterintelligence for like as far as propaganda maneuver, like one big thing is that you just dump fake money out of the back of a plane. Yeah, it's hilarious. Mm-hmm. It's just fucking funny. <laughs> Hold on, we're getting shot at for this. Yeah, it's just, like that's how you're going to destabilize. You just dump fake yeah. money yeah. out of the bag. Well, and and there are there are so many. Like we could do, a, like we'll eventually do a whole series on the SOE. It's amazing and, and the operations they did because nobody, and I have to like we nobody did wartime espionage like the Brits. These are creative. Nobody. I mean, they are a lot of this James lot, Bond there, shit is real. There are a lot yeah, of countries. Yeah. There are a lot of we'll countries that in time of war are good at foreign espionage. The U.S. in World War II. Very good. The, the Brits are light years ahead of everybody else. The Germans were light years behind every, everybody else. Yeah, that was, that was the one hilarious. aspect they're, they weren't great at. Yeah, there's with one exception we'll get with, to. Spoke with weird um, accents. Uh, here's, uh, here's a fun one. Why are we speaking English? They would go into pubs and order coffee. 
Yeah. And then they would just immediately arrest that person. Hey, but, if, uh, I, if, if I put on these glasses with this weird nose, I look like oh, glass Groucho Marx. <laughs> and they'll think I am Groucho Marx. And I, they will talk to me like I'm an actor. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Germans disguise their, one of their uh, own military vessels is the RMS Carmania. And they, they launched it so that it would go and ambush British vessels, uh, and particularly upon the shipping lanes. Yeah, they called the, them Q-ships. The very first ship that it ran into was the RMS Carmania. They just blew the fuck out of it. <laughs> like, they, they signaled it, and the Brits are like, oh. And then just put it on the bottom. You know that meme where Spider-Man's pointing at Spider-Man? It's, it, yeah, if the it's other that, Spider-Man it's just that. shelled him into oblivion. Yeah, exactly. Um, so one of the memo's great successes here appears to have been the inspiration for Operation Mincemeat. Uh, this is so good. They don't name them like they used no. to. Using a rat-poisoned corpse of a London tramp, two members of British intelligence dress him as an officer of the Royal Marines. Yeah. Well, we have the guy's name, too. His name was Glendower Michael. He was a Welshman. I wasn't sure he'd want to be associated yeah. with this. And a, a tramp is a, a homeless guy. Uh, I thought it was just Charlie Chaplin. Uh, two members of British intelligence dressed him as an officer of the Royal Marines, loaded him with personal effects and military correspondence, suggesting the Allies intended to invade Greece yeah. and Sardinia with Sicily they only as a invented a whole family history oh, yeah. in case it's German incredible. intelligence dug into this guy. And it's not Captain verified. Captain William Martin. Yeah. It's not verified, but a lot of people think Fleming himself hand-wrote a lot mm-hmm. of these. Um, and then dropped him off the coast of Spain, where he was quickly discovered by fishermen, Picked up by the quote-unquote neutral Spanish and then immediately yeah. funneled to German intelligence. Yeah, so the Spanish, you know, they're under Franco. They're under a fascist, uh, they're under fascist leadership. And they weren't, they were technically neutral in the war, but they had a pretty cozy relationship yeah. with the Germans. Oh, yeah. Fascist. Especially since German intervention in the Spanish Civil War had helped bring Franco yes, to power. For sure. Um Seeing the threat of German access to Romanian oil fields, Ian devises a plan to sink concrete-laden barges in the River Danube, effectively blocking any opportunity to ship. Um, on this one, the conspirators were discovered, so the operation didn't go through, yeah. uh, and the fallout was pretty significant, although Godfrey made sure Ian didn't take the blame for it. Well, I, I want to get into Operation Mincemeat a little more. Okay, go ahead. Um, so the Trout Memo was the definitely the inspiration for this, and there is... The Trout Memo is a list of 54 different yep. schemes to deceive, trap, and destroy German submarines and surface vessels, to undermine German shore defenses, and to help dis- uh, disguise Allied operations. And item 28, which is under the uh, a section titled, quote, a suggestion, in parentheses, not a very nice one. <laughs> <laughs> he was a cheeky fuck. Uh, the, section, uh, the section goes on to suggest, quote, a corpse dressed as an airman with dispatches in his pocket that could be dropped off the coast, supposedly from a parachute that has failed. I understand there is no difficulty in obtaining corpses at the naval <laughs> hospital, but of course, it will have to be a fresh one. End quote. It's, yeah, I mean, it, it, the operations that he starts, that he helps plan, it, I mean... And it, again, I mean, his entire family is knee-deep in the war. I mean, yeah. it, we'll get to Peter later. Um, his younger brother, Michael, who was a captain in the 4th Ox and Bucks Infantry, is badly wounded in May 1940 during the German invasion of France on the retreat to Dunkirk. He's captured. He ends up dying of his wounds in captivity mm-hmm. in the, on the 1st of October 1940. Um, in uh, late 1940, Fleming headed a study, a fact-finding study with Kenneth Mason, who was the uh, professor of geography at Oxford, in which they laid out the entire coastal geography of Europe mm-hmm. from the you know from the 
very north of Russia, all the way to the far end of Turkey, and basically lays out, it, it it's becomes a key part of planning any kind of amphibious operation. Um, and then, uh, should we talk about Operation Ruthless? Well, let me, uh, let me talk about his time in Paris. Quick. Okay. Uh, in June 1940, Ian flies to Paris and coordinates British intelligence operations as the city falls. Uh, the SIS had just pulled out, but it left a huge cash store in a Rolls-Royce dealership, uh, which he's able to uh, get a hold of. Uh, it's, there's for, no way that's real. We're looking for volunteers. Me! It's all tied. It's there's all no tied. way that yeah. that's um, real. Dude, the one, it, the one thing about war is it is always ten times as weird as you ever think it would be, yeah. and it's always weird. So Ian's primarily there to convince the French Admiralty to shelter the remaining Navy uh, in the UK. Mm-hmm. Uh, which does not prove successful. Uh, they end up taking it to Spain. North Africa. Yeah. I mean, they, yeah they... Um, what he is able to accomplish is uh, getting rides home for hundreds of British refugees who are fleeing the city, um, mainly by threatening to sink a tremendous amount of merchant vessels that they didn't agree to take these people back to the UK. Yeah. This is independent of the Dunkirk evacuation, by the way. Yeah, no, and he just does. It's, it's just him and his attaché just straight up threaten these these, these captains. Um, so Ian's creative streak continued with Operation Ruthless, uh, which was a vital need to capture updated details of the German uh, Navy's Enigma codes. Mm-hmm. Uh, a plan was devised to crash a capture. Well, and, and if you don't know what it, uh, what we're talking about with Enigma, um, so there was a, a German code system called Ultra that was the main German covert communications method they that and the and they would use uh these dial operated they were essentially analog computers and they were known as enigma machines that they would and and that they would um send out a message and transmit the message and then there would be an enigma machine on the other end that mm-hmm. would decode it yeah based on the operation of the dials you, and you the algorithms. You needed to have both sides. You needed to have an equation. Enigma machine at yeah, both yeah. ends. But it allows you to get away from having a static code that's easy mm-hmm. to break, which is the mistake the Japanese made. Yeah. You needed it. It's kind of like a modern fob now. Yeah. You need a physical item to yes. unlock it. In this case, mm-hmm. just being an incredibly complex analog device. Yes. Yes. And there weren't just two. Like, no, there were no. Just hundreds. for the record. I mean, every, pretty much every yeah. significant naval vessel had one. Right, yeah. You had, you had an Enigma machine with every German battalion headquarters. You had an Enigma machine with every... Uh, German aircraft squadron, every German naval vessel, and and every facility. They were all over the place. But the British were working very, very hard to figure it out. And that's where Bletchley Park comes in. Mm -hmm. Bletchley Park is this old um, old, uh, fancy manor house that gets turned in the offices for the main British code-breaking effort headed by Alan Turing. Um, If you've ever seen... What's the uh, Benedict Cumberbatch movie with about Alan Turing? It's really good. Um... Where he looks awkward and British. Um, uh, you mean uh, any, any any single Benedict Cumberbatch yeah. movie? Catwalking across a keyboard. That's how you make his name. Um, but it, uh, but yes. Yeah, so Alan Turing, who I ends up being who ends up being like imitation game. Imitation, imitation game. game. Just Thank came you. Out. you beat you beat Google. Yeah, if you've ever seen the imitation game, that's that's what this is about. And Alan Turing ends up getting screwed over by the British government and ends up getting chemically castrated because he was gay at a time when it was illegal to be gay. Um, but they end up eventually breaking the ultra code through. Just pencil and paper. Yeah. Pencil, paper, and sheer smarts. Which they have to do because this plan didn't work out. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so what he, was the and, other fucking yeah, choice? So Fleming's concept here was to take a captured German bomber, repair it, uh, sink it in the English Channel, 
and wait for a German rescue vessel because they were aware that all of these had Enigma devices on it. Mm -hmm. uh, wait until they tried to save the crew, the crew being filled with British commandos, and then capture the vessel and any codes and devices within. Um, the mission is called off before it's attempted. Uh, Turing was reportedly bloody fucking furious yeah. about this. Well, they couldn't, they couldn't find any suitable German vessels in the area through yeah. recon or wire, wireless telegraphy. And eventually they realize that if you drop a plane in the English Channel, it is going to sink immediately. Well, yeah. and, and, that was, and, and that was the interesting part, was that it, they, there were uh, two or three admirals in the high command in the admiralty that said, the only reason this plan won't work is because of how fast a German bomber will sink. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, that was it. Yeah, if, the plan's going to go really if well. If they could have kept it floating... Yeah, <laughs> the plan's going to go really well when you have a very good chance of killing half of the people involved just yeah. getting it started. Right. And by the way, if you want to see the Enigma, I can't remember if it's in the American History Museum or if it's in the Air and Space Museum, but the Smithsonian does have one <laughs> on display. I think it's in the Museum of American History. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Last time I was down there. Yeah. If you ever Two find yourself ago. in London when we're eventually allowed to travel again, um, the Imperial War Museum in London also has an excellent display <laughs> about Enigma and the breaking of the Ultra Code nice. and the work of Bletchley wow. Park. And it actually goes into a lot of the other things they did just besides breaking the Ultra Code. So Operation Goldeneye, in contrast, was put into more direct action in 1941 and 42. An intelligence framework was created in Spain in case Germans attempted to occupy the territory directly. Uh, retaining co communication with the British outpost on Gibraltar was considered vital to ensuring Germans didn't completely dominate the seaways. Yeah. Well, and the thing about Gibraltar is, if you if you know where Gibraltar is, it's at the very southern tip of Spain. It is right at the entrance to the Mediterranean. Big rock. It Can't is miss it. what? It's six miles from Morocco. Yeah, six miles. Yeah. It's the most. It is an incredibly defensible point to either keep the routes into the Mediterranean open or to block them off if you want. And if Gibraltar falls, the British lose a huge, huge foothold in the Mediterranean yep. theater. The Greeks, the Etruscans, um, several other ancient colonizations, when they when they go to the end of the Mediterranean Sea, they would see Gibraltar. They thought that was the rock of the gods. That, they Pillars thought of that's Hercules. where the end yep. of the world was. Yep. Yeah. That's where they stopped. Yeah, the two the two rock faces that are at each end are called the Pillars of Hercules. <laughs> exactly. So this is where Ian starts working directly with American Colonel Wild Bill Donovan. Future, uh, future episode subject, Wild right? Bill Donovan. Oh, uh, yeah, future series, series subject. subject. So Wild he's Roosevelt's special representative on intelligence corporation, or cooperation between London and uh, the United States. Uh, in May of 1941, Godfrey and Fleming actually travel to the States, first in New York, uh, then to D.C. Uh, they meet Herbert Hoover, which Ian despises. Uh, and in the case of Godfrey, uh, meets Roosevelt himself, who he helps convince to establish a joint intelligence operation not dissimilar to what the Brits were doing. Uh, at this time, it was basically each individual branch had their own intelligence, and not unlike America pre-9-11, no one was talking to each other, information wasn't getting shared, and everything went out the goddamn window. Mike and I will be telling marine intelligence jokes later. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, that's an oxymoron in the... Like yeah, I said, we're gonna, we're gonna be telling the jokes hey later. So <laughs> this joint uh, organization—that's uh, the second dad joke of the night. 
So despite being interrupted at a dinner party by Godfrey, uh, Roosevelt actually listens and after this uh, establishes the OSS. The Office of Strategic Services. Which would eventually become the CIA. Uh, Ian stays behind in the States for a few weeks and goes as far as essentially writing a blueprint for the organization. Uh, future trips to North America during the war, Ian would observe and by his own admission but not verifiable train at the Special Forces Camp X. He insists that he's like a record breaker there and there's not a single paper trail that says he actually did a damn thing. But uh, He weighs 135 pounds. Yeah. He smokes, he, he smokes many, many cigarettes a day. Homeboy didn't set any records. <laughs> but he had a vision of himself in his head. Yeah. Uh, he also visits Jamaica for the first time during the he war. He was also voted Michigan's Man of the Year. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jesus fucking Ooh. Christ. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, for a naval conference... I bet you he had the Uper vote. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, yeah, so during this time, he visits Jamaica for the first time, which he absolutely falls in love with, and we will return to that later uh, for a naval conference. Legalize um, it. Yes. Uh, one of Ian's... How do, how do we win the war? Ja will provide. <laughs> uh, so one of Ian's greatest contributions to the British wartime intelligence was in his formation of the number 30 commando, or what would become the 30th assault unit. Originally incorporated as the Special Intelligence Unit, it was composed of specialist troops and Royal Marines. The force, inspired by German actions in the Battle of Crete in May 1941, worked ahead of Allied advances to seize enemy documents from previously targeted headquarters before they could be destroyed by the other party. Yeah, we'll eventually talk about the guy who led the German effort at the Battle of, of Crete, a guy named Otto Skorzeny in, in an episode somewhere down the road. I refuse to believe that that dude's a real person. <laughs> He's Arnold Schwarzenegger in Commando, yes. only like... Even more ridiculous. Yeah. Like, instead of, like, killing one guy with throwing a saw blade, it's, like, five guys with throwing a saw blade. <laughs> I don't know, man. Jack Churchill ended up killing Germans with a broadsword <laughs> and a longbow. He shot one guy with a bow. <laughs> it kills a kill, man. But uh, That's enough to put you in the legend. No, like, and why is every German hero named Otto? Uh, as was the style at the time. <laughs> as was the style. <laughs> but, like, Otto Scorsese stories are like, oh, he flew with a helicopter backpack, and he honked, he honked Churchill on the nose and pulled his pants down and flew back out the window. <laughs> but, like, like if this dude was that good, they the would have won the fucking war. <laughs> he, he, it's, well, y y your name has to be a palindrome in order to... Uh, Achieve legendary it's status. It's just easier to remember. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So initially... Okay, for... I, I get it. <laughs> oh, it's the same oh, forwards as backwards. It's very amusing. All right. It is very efficient. So initially 30 strong, but swelling to over 300, uh, commandos were trained in unarmed combat, safe cracking, and lock picking. They had operational independence or independence from other the from other forces in theater. Yeah, which... these, guys, these guys are the badasses that Fleming claims he was at Camp X. Yes. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh... Which, I mean, so their independence also caused a fair amount of conflict with other forces in the region. Yeah. Well, like, special operations forces that we know today didn't yeah. exist in the Second World War. These guys are the first iteration. Yes. Uh, their first confirmed deployment was for Operation Torch. Uh, they were landings on the west of Algiers where they worked to secure code books and other documents from German and Italian forces. Though itching for a more direct involvement himself, Godfrey recognized Ian's importance in to the Admiralty. And essentially, if he was captured, he knew pretty much every single intelligence operation the British were working on at any given time. Yeah. So he forbade him from deploying in any circumstance. Well, you uh, never... You, it makes sense. You, uh, yeah, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Ian wanted the glory, you but he was, put, frankly, too, he had too much knowledge. You minimized the risk to your He knew where, he knew where the bodies were yeah. buried. 
you never put because frankly you as much as you can test a person you do not know how much torture it would take Ian would not yeah. have taken torture well, then, yeah, would have no, no, well, well, we know that. Don't do it. Don't do it. I swear to God. Okay, so here's where all the mines are. Sipping a whiskey. Going, what do you want to know? Yeah, no, seriously. Oh. Where's the bottle? Oh, well, I, I don't have a pillow on my chair. Um, how many spies' names do you want? Yeah. I, but no, I, any asset. Yeah. The more you know. <laughs> The less you're going to be allowed to be in the field. Yeah, and it makes and it's just and Ian understood it, this, yeah. but it was a chip on his shoulder that never passed. Yeah. It's you part want, of why he made up these stories about Camp you want, It's part of where Bond you want a reverse from. pyramid structure in terms yeah. of actual intelligence. Um, um, and actually, it's it's been debated that Operation Torch was 30 assault units' first operation. Um, there are yes, some. There, there's no official records to support this, but there are or were some members of 30 AU that claimed that they went ashore uh, at the Dieppe raid. Yes. Um, if you don't know what the Dieppe raid was, it was uh, like a... Ta- it, it happened in August of 42. Torch happened in November of 42. The Dieppe raid, also known as Operation Jubilee, was it was like a test run for mm-hmm. landing, uh, doing an amphibious landing in France. And yes. they sent ashore about 6,000 troops, mainly Canadians, at Dieppe in France uh, with Naval and Air Force support. And they it was a... Disaster. I think of about 6,000 men who landed within 10 hours, something like 3,600 of them were killed, wounded, or captured. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was it was just an absolute yeah. goat rope from word jump. And But it did provide some very, very valuable lessons that later paid off during the D-Day landings. It um, but it is... Uh, some 30AU members have claimed that they went ashore there to yeah. try to um, grab... Not necessarily Enigma machines, because the Allies had Enigma machines. They never got their hands on any Enigma machine manuals. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's the problem. That was specifically what they were there for. Well, and these were devices with tens of thousands of settings. Mm-hmm. Hundreds of thousands of yeah, settings. Very I mean, complicated was, machines. Yeah. Um, they, they were better than a Rubik's Cube. Yeah. So I mean, these are one step below the massive like punch card oh, yeah. room-sized oh, yeah. yeah. computers that yeah. you start to get in the, in the 50s. Yeah. Um, so Ian did... Uh, observed Torch directly. He was on a, a naval vessel off the coast during the time period. Uh, it was his first real exposure to live fire. Um, you know, outside of a little bit in Paris. Um, and I, by the way, not even fighting the Germans. They were fighting the Vichy French. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so for most of the 19th... They still managed to almost fuck it up. Yeah, they did. Yeah, they did. Those it, wily not a, French yeah. known for their prowess in combat in the Second World War. <laughs> Uh, so, for most of 1943, 30AU operated in the Greek islands, Norway, Sicily, and Corsica. In November 1943, the unit returned to Britain to prepare for Operation Overlord, which, you know, in American parliaments would be D-Day. Uh, I mean, we, we still call it Overlord. Yeah. <laughs> great. Because great there's no greater name than Overlord. Yeah, well, especially the, with Wolfenstein the movie. <laughs> uh, it's free so, on Prime. You should totally watch it. It's fucking hilarious. <laughs> also known as worst being worst day at the beach ever. <laughs> Wolf. Uh, so on June 6, 1944, they did take part in the Normandy landing. Uh, Pike Force landed at Juno Beach and was tasked with capturing a radar station north of 
Kane. Okay, when we say Pike Force, do we mean Pike is in the weapon? P-I-K-E? That is, or P-Y-K-E yep. is nope. in Jeffrey Pike, the guy who built the aircraft carrier out of ice? It's the weapon. Okay. So 30 at this point gets divided What was the name of that weird concrete uh, ice shit? It was, Pike Creek. Pike Creek, yeah. It was, it was sawdust with... We, we uh, Again, Jeffrey Pike, he is on the list of future He's super crazy, sometimes. but like in a good way. He yeah. seemed like fairly charming. I'm sure a, there's a milkshake duck he, moment in there somewhere, he, but he built he built a giant aircraft carrier on a lake. Yeah, the, of, Habac- the Habakkuk. Yeah. Uh, and then... Ice like, and sawdust, but they built it, it in a lake stronger than steel armor. And they were like, "Okay, now what?" Yeah, like, "Okay, yeah, well, we that can, was like, the tester." Like, if you can deploy it, like, now what? <laughs> it would would have fucking worked. Yeah. <laughs> so thirty at this point. He, he also to... developed the incendiary bat bomb, but we'll get into what? that later. He sure did. Oh yeah, it's exactly right. what it sounds like, dude. Yeah. So thirty at this time is big enough to split into different in different teams. So uh, Pike Force goes with the radar dish. Uh, four days later, uh, Wool Force lands on Utah Beach. Uh, wool Force? Yeah. Wool. W-O-O-L. Oh. Yeah, no, not Wolf. No, not Wolf. wolf. Not much nearly less that cool. cool. No, they much more British. Ah. <laughs> and their primary task was examining V-1 rocket sites. Uh, after the unit's involvement in the capture of Cherbourg, Fleming, who had previously been overseeing the distribution of intelligence to Royal Navy forces in preparation for the invasion, visits them directly on the field. He was concerned that their skill set was not being properly utilized when tasked with these more traditional commando roles. Uh, he also needed to squash the unit's growing reputation as problematic, especially with the region's female population where they had earned, and this is incredible, uh, the nickname the 30 Indecent Assault Unit. Yeah. Nice. Uh, his Red Indians, as he called him, uh, <laughs> Respected his knowledge, but saw him as a direct extension of the Admiralty. They say first in, last out. They just don't tell you what you're in and out of. (laughs) First in, last out, over and over again. His his troops were clearly aware that he was dissatisfied by not being out there with them. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that didn't really earn him any respect, and they took a sadistic glee and kind of putting him in situations where yeah. he'd be directly exposed to live fire. That happened all through the British military. All these spoiled rich boys going, I want to be in the war! Yeah. Uh, he did fall... Yeah, I mean, like, it sounded like it was a blast. Oh, yeah, great time. Uh, he did follow him into the Germany, where they located and captured German the German naval archives at Tombach Castle, along with 30 tons of intelligence, 20 officers, and 500 men. Yeah, do you realize how much intelligence is on 30 tons of paper. Yeah. yeah. I mean, a lot of it's this, still classified. Yeah. And this like, is coming from the Germans who are really, really good at destroying this kind of stuff. Yep. Mm-hmm. You know, think about all the shit that... The, yes, the, but they were also meticulous about typing the stuff. Yeah. yeah, they, I mean, yeah they, they, oh, they, they were they were records keepers. They were yeah. far better at keeping the records than destroying them. Well, the guy who was the, the commandant of the, of the unit based at the castle... That when, when they found out that he had left without burning the records, they did shoot him in the head. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, uh, go to the go to the Holocaust Museum mm-hmm. and look at how little is is really known, because it was all destroyed. Yeah, including most of the people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's neither here nor there. But the the Germans were really good at destroying a lot of information, which is why capturing shit like this was unbelievably important. Yeah. Well, Absolutely. not in the case of the Luftwaffe archives in German, in Berlin. We kind of did that for them. Yeah. Right. We dropped a bunch of incendiary bombs <laughs> yeah, on the building. Did. Oops. Uh, uh, well, not directly placed in charge. Can of- I do that? <laughs> really? We're going really? We're going with TGIF. What? What? Too soon? <laughs> he did drive a little German car. He did. He sure did. <laughs> he was talking about 
air bombing Berlin. And, <laughs> yeah, that and episode where Steve Urkel air bombs yeah. Berlin. That's that where you, you draw the really line at out Urkel. of the blue there. <laughs> Come on, we all know it was his alter ego, Stefan Urkel. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I just uh, hope Urkel's doing okay. I mean, that's still a big oopsie. <laughs> Uh, the, the bombing, not not, not not family matters. Yeah, no, everybody. <laughs> that was an television show. They said they were doing something right until it just became the Urkel show, which was you know almost as bad as the yeah. Reichstag, but almost. <laughs> well, then the dad saved all those people at Nakatomi Plaza, and it was all good. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, it's good. exactly. It was before that. <laughs> Carl Otis Winslow. No, I think Die Hard was before. Let's, that. let's yeah. not get into this. Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll I'll Google it. I don't give a shit. Uh, <laughs> so. Chris Miller, being of pure internet. So with the Keep going, okay, Don't worry, Kyle. I got this. He'll, so he'll interject when it's I'm time. Just, <laughs> I'm just trying to figure out why it was an insult. Yeah. Was it an insult? Kyle, I just can't believe you made a 1992 TGIF reference. Kyle, is there something that you want to talk about? Like... Is there something that we want to talk about? This is not time for a special episode. Kyle, what are you talking about? The man is 47 years old. 1992 is when he was in his prime. Okay, so uh, Die Hard was 88. Uh, Family Matters aired in 89. So uh, Die Hard was first. Oh, I thought that's what I was arguing. Mm -mm. That's fine. Just keep going. Okay, now I'm going to say that's right. The fuck on. Now we're we're down a rabbit hole. Now we're good. So with the success of 30AU, T-Force or Target Force is created. Uh, Fleming is not directly in charge of this, but he does sit on the committee that selects targets. They end up uh, having huge victories, uh, getting information yep. and sights on V2 rocket sites. And unlike being a special commando force, they are actually made up of larger, yes. in, a, a established infantry units. Much bigger force. Uh, they capture V2 rocket sites, uh, high-speed U-boats, uh, and nuclear sites. Um, so Man, they, they actually were trying to make U-boats that would skip across the fucking water yeah. like cigarette boats. like. They also oh, had one-person submarines some that shit. some of the Admiral were convinced were... didn't exist yeah. until... So this is so they find one, and Fleming's insistent, this is one of the ones we've read about, like, this is a one-person submarine, and the Admiral, he's de- or the commander on the field he's debating, says, no, this is that's bullshit, until he looks down the periscope into the eye socket of a fucking skeleton. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Let me out. Well, I was watching. I was watching a Nat Geo uh, show uh, called "Drain the Oceans," and one of the one of the U boats in the channel was that night four of the Republican National Convention. Oh Christ! <laughs> Drain the oceans. Oh come on! You know they didn't publish Jesus, an actual man. platform this year. <laughs> I wasn't even getting political, man. <laughs> Don't bring my libertarianism into your conservative. Throw the pitch. I'm going to hit it. <laughs> anyway. Uh, no, they were talking about a U-boat that had specific, and it was in these papers, mm-hmm. that had this specific sounding stuff on it. it and the, it took out several English ships because it, it eventually got suck, sunk by some fluke reason. But um, the, it, it collided with a U.S. heavy cruiser yes. they didn't know was there. Yes, it, it was something like that. I mean, all the high tech in the world and yeah. just an, an, a dipshit oopsie. Bit of a goof em up. Yeah. But the Germans had, the Germans had developed this yeah. coating yeah. that would be resistant to anything as far as soundings. Yeah, as you, far couldn't, as, you, you couldn't pick you them couldn't up on their hydrophones. Couldn't pick them up on, on, on hydrophones. Yeah. And if you stayed and you, you stayed out of immediate sonar range, they would have but no the idea you were there. figured this out, and they didn't find... It, it wasn't until... Uh, you know, 
yeah, forty years, fifty years later, they found this U-boat yeah, the wreck. channel to prove they knew that it one actually existed, existed, but they couldn't find it. Yeah, yeah. But when well, when this thing sank, it collided with a U.S. heavy cruiser. <laughs> the The American ship didn't know it was there, and it didn't know the American ship was there. And everybody just heard a massive thud, and was just like, well, "What was that?" Like, <laughs> well, just shit. <laughs> huh. But yeah, it's, it's but they yeah. So T Force basically is meant to move forward at high speed and seize these sites and seize the plans, the equipment, and the scientists. Yeah. It's basically Britain's answer to America's Operation Paperclip. Yeah. Which again, something we'll we'll talk about in a future episode because right. Operation Paperclip is nuts. Oh my god. Uh, so, uh, throughout the war effort, uh, Ian continues his extracurricular activities. Uh, he grows closer to Anne O'Neill. Uh, perhaps unsurprisingly, Ian actually kind of enjoyed the adrenaline rush of the, of the Blitz. Um, <laughs> he's the uh, one uh, asshole in the street going, yeah. well, I mean, he, he enjoyed the weird sense of camaraderie yeah. that came out of it because you're all under a horrible situation. It's kind of like what we should be doing with this pandemic is working together yeah. as a team and making things better, but that's never here. Hey, you put no. that light out. I'm lighting up the whole neighborhood. Tucker Carlson <laughs> said the loop off is fake. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so fun fact, there's now well north of 100 cases coming out of Sturgis that are linked directly to a Smash Mouth concert. God. Imagine lying on your deathbed. Oh, you and just thinking, damn you, Smash and Mouth! And just thinking, hey now, you're a rock star. It's Smash game Mouth on. concert it was fucking hey. worth it. <laughs> well, and by the way, Smash Mouth can fuck all the way off. We all know hot this. Take my I, I, I thought okay, I was a you want that, star. You want that to be your hill to die on? These are soft fucking takes again. Everybody hates Smash I Mouth. I hate Nickelback. Shrek hated Smash Mouth too. He just took money from him because he's a goddamn coward. <laughs> so, quite a few times, Ian survives uh, direct hits on buildings he's standing in. Uh, literally rooms falling apart around him. Brushing the shoulder off and getting up to the well, next. They excursion. don't build them like they used to. <laughs> yeah, you're smoking seventy cigarettes a day. You think a little dust um, is going to make him cough? His lover Muriel was less likely or lucky. She spent the war as a motorcycle courier for the British military. Um, her death uh, was also just weird. Um, it was shrapnel, but it was so the building she was in wasn't hit, but a bomb fell outside her structure. Shrapnel went through her window and destroyed her face. Yep. Uh, oh Ian God. was her point of contact, mm. so he was the one who had to identify her. Um, and it wasn't her face he was identifying. That's no, why they brought him in. No. Yeah. I mean, that's... Uh, yeah. And he... Could you imagine? He, I, it's, uh, this is kind of a changing point for him. Well, it, he feels it, tremendous it, guilt over this. I, 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 I read yeah. and saw that several times. Yeah. He doesn't this have is, anywhere this to is, go. You know, it was kind of this... And he's now finally up close and personal with the violence and destruction of the war. Yeah. Uh, you know, and there's a few stories at the time where he and Anne are out on dates, and they, you know, he takes a subway in one example, and he comes out in a station, and there's 2,000 Brits living there. You know, it, it's for him to see what people are really suffering through mm -hmm. really changes his perspective, and it kind of changes his own priorities with his personal life. Um, he gets a lot closer to Anne during this period. Um, Anne also... So Anne's husband dies in the war himself. Yeah, he's killed in Italy so, in 1944. They're both grieving. His tank took a direct artillery shell hit on the commander's hatch. Oh, oh Jesus. You'd want to talk about that unlucky silver bullet. Yeah. So this, while it doesn't cement their relationship as an official thing, it does really start to show them their priorities in each other's lives. Um, 
So before the war's over, Fleming takes a tour of the Pacific Front, uh, where he helps set up the intelligence infrastructure for the newly created British Pacific Fleet. Um, he sees some of the islands in the Pacific. He finishes in Pearl Harbor. Uh, in May 1945, he's formally demobilized, although he does keep his commission in the volunteer force until August of 1952. Uh, his travels and experiences, as well as lingering frustration and his limited direct involvement, left him intent, as he would tell multiple people during the war, to write the spy novel to end all spy novels. Mm-hmm. And it, 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 we, we kind of skipped over this, but in 1942, he attended uh, an intelligence summit in Jamaica. Yes, and there is, and he fell, absolutely fell in love with Jamaica. So Which much we'll so that back, before yeah. he left the summit, he bought a plot of land. And uh, Former horse farm, former, or a horse, a horse track. Yeah, for, at a former racetrack. And uh, in 1945, at the end of the war, he uh, builds a house, and he calls it? Goldeneye. Goldeneye. I love that movie. Fantastic. <sighs> yeah. Fantastic. And... Uh, yeah, sorry. Continue. So Ian now sees a potential future for himself as a writer, but he also understands himself enough to know he needs a structure a traditional mm-hmm. job is going to offer. Well, before we, we move further into what was going on between Ian and Anne, um, Anne thought she was going to marry Ian. He decided, he, he was like, oh, I'm not ready to get hitched yet. I'd prefer my bachelor lifestyle. So she marries her other fuck body, Rothermere, yep. of, of the Daily Mail fortune, uh, but the whole time, still kept shagging Fleming. Yeah. I mean, he's oh, yeah. not the only... He's not the only uh, sexually liberated person in this story. No, and Edmund himself was not a faithful partner. Nope. Uh, would... Everybody was fucking everybody. Yeah, and it... I mean, so, it, like, everyone kind of knew it, but no one talked about it. Yeah, there's It this... wasn't like... This wasn't some, yeah. like, modern interpretation of, like, poly it's... relationships. Well, it's like, it's like going back to Victorian times. It's like, yeah. it's like nobility... Throughout history, there's always this chaste veneer yeah. to it, and underneath it, everybody is just falling into orifices left and right. Yes, that's it. Well, I'm, it, yeah, exactly, and and that's why I I love this the current veneer of prudishness. This idea that every oh well, we have to have these monogamous relationships, and you know this this is good family values. Everybody fucking. Yeah. yeah. People look... Henry VIII had six wives and everybody thought he was one of the great sluts of history. Come on. Yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll come back to everybody fucking. So, Ian has very little interest in returning to the world of brokerage. This despite the fact that Roe uh, continued to pay him throughout the war. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's collecting a military salary. Yeah, he's... he's getting a salary he, from the investment firm that he hasn't worked for since 1933. And well, really and it, didn't work yeah. for when he was there. Yeah. And it gets so much better when he takes the position of foreign manager at the Kemsley newspapers, which was the home of the Sunday Times at the, at the, during the era. The, uh, the, the Daily Mail's biggest uh, competitor. Yes. Right. Which so, he there's, and there's a gave each of... other hell about constantly. Yeah. You know, you know, they, they, they would joke about their professional rivalry on the regular. Uh, kind of like uh, James Carville and um, Marley Maitland. No, not Marley Matlin. No, Marianne. Oh, God. I you know the, the I other know one. Exactly Carville's the gray about. alien that pops up on CNN sometimes, right? Yeah. The Raging Cajun. The Raging yeah. Cajun. Yeah. Uh, so the compensation here was. Uh, Mary Madeline. I was. 
Very were, close. I thought you were going to say Marley Matlin. I'm like, that's no, not no, it. No, I was no, kind of hoping no, Mary no, Matlin no, was going to Not the deaf girl. <laughs> She's not with Willem Dafoe. Um, so the compensation here was tremendous. Uh, Thank you, Kyle, for that 1990 film reference. Exactly. I'm not even sure it was, I, I was, a, I think it was 80s. At least I went 92. Let he without sin cast the first stone. <laughs> Fair. Uh, so he's paid 4,500 pounds a year plus 500 in expenses and a full two months of holiday. The base pay alone today in U.S. dollars is about $250,000. Yeah. Um, it's a good gig. Good gig. Plus he was, you know, he was getting his military pension. Yeah, with several, was, months, several months vacation. Yeah. Good yeah. work if you can get it. Yeah, sign yeah. me the fuck up. Uh, Ian right? was given the opportunity to make a respectful amount of money and take his experience from the war and build essentially his own intelligence service mm-hmm. that he dubs Mercury. Kemsley in return was able to take advantage of Ian's vast connections and social standings and to repair their bruised reputation after a series of poor choices earlier, or before the war, really. Yeah. Uh, some really poor tasting articles about the Nazis, and uh, they were really in favor of a peace. Wait, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Everything old said, is new again when you're talking about a peace with Nazis. <laughs> He some, tried some, really some, hard some to interview articles Hitler. in poor taste about the Nazis. When is there ever an article in poor taste about the Nazis unless it's, hey, the Nazis are good. Hey, look, in Berlin in 1933, there were good people on both sides. <laughs> anyway. Uh, anyway, back to the Richard <laughs> Spencer thing. Yes. God damn it. So Ian takes great pride in Mercury Division, and he kind of lords over it like... M in his future book series. What do we call our journalists' lunch club? Because that's pretty much what it was. Let's call it Mercury Division. Yeah, it's fucking great. I love it. His 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 good band name. The dramatic band. is just Mercury exceptional. Yeah. Um, so Ian's own intelligence history helps turn his department into a home for many intelligence veterans, and his network at times serves for cover for MI6 agents abroad. Um, writing in the Kemsley Manual of Journalism, Ian describes his ideal foreign correspondent. He must be a credit to his country and his newspaper abroad. He should be either a bachelor or solidly married man who is happy to have his children brought up abroad. His personality must be such that our ambassador will be pleased to see him when the occasion demands. He must move something of protocol and yet enjoy having a drink with the meanest spy or the wealthiest spiv. He must be completely at home in one foreign language and have another to fall back on. He must be grounded in the history and and the culture of the territory in which he is serving. He must be intellectually inquisitive and have some knowledge of most sports. He must be able to keep a secret. He must be physically strong and not addicted to drink. Pot calls the kettle black. He must have pride in, in his work and in the paper he serves. And finally, he must be a good reporter with a wide vocabulary, fast with a typewriter, with knowledge of shorthand, and able to drive a car. This is almost the exact description he provided Donovan in 1941 when showing his perfect ideal for a American Secret Service agent. Also, forget what I said. 250 grand isn't worth that. <laughs> <laughs> he lost me at should not be addicted to drink. Yeah. But no, but he's, he's trying to... What make, else are you going to do with 250 grand? Exactly. But he's, he's trying to make sure that even with this amateur espionage He didn't game, say crack. It's mm. that, that even with this amateur espionage racket, it's still a game, a gentleman's game. Yeah. It's still an, an upper-class kind of thing. So along with cementing a professional and future and financial future for himself, Ian spends the time immediately following the war building his estate that he envisioned during the war. 
he commissions that home in Goldeneye, uh, named for the wartime operation. Uh, drawing back to his childhood, Ian has steps built into a private beach behind, where when not writing over the next decade, Ian takes to the water to study flora and fauna of the Caribbean, uh, including a reef which is directly behind his home. Uh, eventually, Ian arranges a pay cut at Kemsley. Uh, he takes a deduction of a thousand pounds a year for a full three months at the start of each year to vacation in Jamaica. Uh, in March of 1948, Anne discovers she is pregnant with Ian's child. Uh, Mary Fleming dies eight hours after the birth, and both Ian and Anne are devastated. Struggling with the realities of their romantic entanglements, they realize at the time that they rely on each other a lot more than they cared to acknowledge yeah. previously. Uh, Ian's kindness during this personal tragedy seems to be a, the sign Anne needed that Ian was truly committed to her. Uh, while recovering in Edinburgh, Anne gives Ian two clear instructions. Write the book, she doesn't say what book, write the book, and start taking his own health seriously. He does one of these two things. <laughs> well, I uh, think I know which one it might be. Yeah. Uh, on holiday, yeah, he immediately. Towed all yeah, those yeah. boats by his teeth uh, on his no. Oh, it was Jack LaLanne. I'm thinking of the other guy. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, what was what's the bike guy from Seattle? What? You lost me on Seattle bike guy. Yeah. You lost yeah, me on what? I. Moving on. Anyway, do you want me to Google I'm, I'm, Seattle bike I'm, guy? No, you're going to Google Seattle bike guy, and it's going to be somebody from a naked bike ride. It's, it's just going to be a hundred thousand. There's just a the, exactly. dildo on a bike seat. Yeah, a whole just, bunch of, it's going to be bad. <laughs> just Seattle a, bike guy. Yeah, I wonder. Well, is he going to is he going to ride normal? Or is he side saddle? That's the uh, question. There's Seattle bike guy LLC. I don't think that's it. No. Uh, <laughs> uh, the yelling bike messenger. No, that's not it. I feel like we need a much better uh, and then the other ones, Anyway. The other ones are all guys with bikes getting the shit kicked out of them by cops. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the time. Ah, uh, 2020. No, uh, <laughs> on holiday after her immediate recovery, uh, Edmund finally ups and, uh, and asks and the true nature of her relationship with Ian. Yeah. They had been he in the same... Knew. He, he knew. He knew, but he never quantified it. And the whole, like, oh, you're <laughs> pregnant and we haven't wonder, fucked in years. I wonder, if he uh, act, I wonder if he acted it up like, oh, you've been cheating on me? It sounds like he did. It sounds like he did. All <laughs> uh, oh, the so pearl clutching. She's completely honest with him. She's <laughs> uh, like, yeah. man, do you just want to call this? Right. Like, Well, and they, they continue for a bit. Um, yeah. She's honest with him. He demands she cuts ties of Ian. That's not going to happen. Edmund himself was not being faithful in this period. Uh, Ian and Anne continue seeing each other, going as far as taking trips to Goldeneye with, under the cover of friends. And this <laughs> continues until Edmund and Anne... I'm going to Jamaica to hang out with Noel Coward. Friends yeah. listen to Endless yeah. Love in the Dark. Yeah. So... Well, no, that's actually the excuse, no, that's that's actually the excuse she would give. I'm, I'm going to Jamaica to visit Noel Coward. I'm just going to... Uh, it just so happens that I'm taking ship with Ian here. Yeah. Well, yeah. okay. So this continues until Ian and, or Edmund and Anne agree to a divorce in 1951. Uh, Ian and Anne decide themselves now, finally, to marry. Uh, shortly thereafter that decision, Anne discovers she's pregnant again. Uh, Ian and Anne marry in a small ceremony in Jamaica uh, on March 24th, 1952. August 12th of the same year, Caspar is born. It's like a shotgun wedding for the aristocracy. Right. Uh, although, so, I mean, most consensus is that they didn't know... Uh, she was pregnant until after the uh, the marriage was decided. 
They got married after. So the time frame yeah. does work with that. I mean, it's the marriage. The pregnancy wasn't the reason for the marriage, but it did immediately come into play. Um, so for a time, Ian takes quite a bit of comfort in his new domestic life. Um, there is another birth in the family uh, shortly thereafter. Uh, January 15th, 1952, Ian starts writing his spy thriller. Uh, giving weighty man birth to a to that tome. <laughs> yes. Weighty man birth. He completes his manuscript for Casino Royale in just over two months. Uh, yeah, he really kind of fired it out. Well, I mean, and there's some reports that he six started... Six weeks. In, well, and, and some people think he started in mid-February. Yeah. There's a, there's a conflict on when he actually started. He might have finished it in as short as a month. It's not a long book, wow. but it is pretty good. Um, so I mean, he didn't think so. No, he, he he called it his dreadful oafish opus. Yep. Yeah, but Alan Moore says that about all his shit, and everything he writes is Alan better than Moore the last is thing he wrote. Also, the most miserable yeah. human being who has ever lived. Yeah, Alan Moore looks like if if <laughs> whenever Gandalf the a, White fell, if he just fell into just like a big mopey wizard, just crack. I mean, um, he just came out. You ever suck dick for magic? <laughs> <laughs> So, the, the period of, uh, of writing... I must be slipping. I'm late and I'm early. I did not arrive when I meant to. Oh, no. Comes uh, out all scabby. So... <laughs> you felt... You got a fucking cigarette. Man, it's gonna... <laughs> throws off the cloak. It's just even dirtier. <laughs> hey, man, can I bum a square? <laughs> go, go up to Alan Moore at a Comic-Con and call him Scabby Gandalf. See Alan, what he does. <laughs> like, he'd go to a fucking Harrison Comic-Con. Harrison Ford's more likely to go to another Comic-Con yeah. before Alan Moore does. Uh, the next time he goes, he's just going to start throwing haymakers. <laughs> just like the place on fire. If he even makes it. All that dude does is just crash into golf courses. Yeah. Uh, so the period of him writing this is one of great Four. change. Sorry. Hey, well, he might just be happy to get the continental breakfast at the O'Connell Lodge. So, oh <laughs> so writing this for Ian definitely seems to be kind of a coping mechanism. Uh, he's having a bit of a freak out over marriage and the looming fatherhood. And he found writing and his spy thriller and escape. I just love it. Stress, your stress relief is writing a spy novel. Yeah, it's, it. it's 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 beginning to write fourteen of the greatest spy novels in the history of, I of mean, the written word. Okay, so he's writing this over two months in his new estate in Jamaica, killing a bottle of gin and seventy cigarettes. That a does day. help. With yeah, the he's having a well, fine it, time. It's, it, it's, it's hard to be exactly. stressed. Yeah, it's hard to be stressed when you're no, rich no, as fuck. No, when he wakes up, he writes for two hours in the morning. He goes swims, he eats, he drinks, he passes out. He spends an hour reviewing things and then fucks off for the rest. It's Hunter S. Thompson, but classic. Yeah, exactly. This sounds awesome. And like books that make sense. Yeah, (laughs) like a book with a start and then a middle and then an end. Never blame Hunter for that one. So, Uh, listen, Hunter Thompson's not going to be the most technical writer in the world. I've seen his diet. (laughs) <laughs> of hallucinogenics. I, I, I get it. All, all I'm saying is that if you're sitting in Jamaica in a house that you own and you have a people bringing you, you food. <laughs> Bring me my breakfast, Jim. And, uh, more and, abalone and, today? Ugh. And your quote-unquote work is your therapy? It's not really fucking work, dude. It's yeah, not here, a bad life. Here's me feeling bad for Ian Fleming. <laughs> yeah. That's the thing. Like, a lot of people didn't... It, it's an excellent novel, and a lot of people didn't think it was that good. 
Like William Plomer, who was a novelist friend of Fleming, said it was, uh, quote, an impressive first go, but so far as I can see, the element of suspense is completely absent. <laughs> Critics I mean, at the time did not love it. Yeah. Any of it. Um, so Ian was already starting to get a little aware of his health. Um, again, shockingly, consuming a fifth of booze a day and a briefcase of cigarettes isn't going to be great for you. Um, and he, he kind of sees Casino Royale as Caspar's birthright. Kind of a way to provide for him in the future, should something happen to, to Ian. Uh, on his next return to London, the Bond manuscript is in hand. Fleming serves as his own publishing agent in the UK and approaches his publishing, or approaches publishing house Jonathan Cape. Who published his older brother's travel books. Which is super important here. Uh, Cape is super reluctant to oh, publish it. Sweet, sweet nepotism. He man. thinks are it's we, fine. Wait a second. Are we talking about a phrase you used earlier that I neglected to mention and I just loved it. I'm going to say the words. Scholarly Peter. <laughs> so, Cape was super reluctant to publish this initially until he found out that Ian Fleming was, quote, Peter Fleming's little brother. Uh, and that's all it took. Uh, Peter had had some success mostly writing uh, travel narratives yeah but uh, we'll, we'll talk about peter in a minute um so uh ian negotiates he's, for he's like he's like diet ian he's like the one calorie version of his brother yes very yeah. much so um ian negotiates for uh the publishing run revenue sharing uh an advertising strategy and shows a shrewdness that he had zero interest in showing in his days as a stockbroker yeah turns out he's a great businessman when he actually gives a fuck uh and on April 13th, 1953, Casino Royale hit shelves, quickly selling through its initial three print runs. Um, Ian was not in the UK for the publishing date. Yeah. Because he was on an expedition with Jacques Cousteau, the French explorer who they had bonded over their mutual appreciation for diving. Yeah. When the book's a hit. The book's a huge hit. The book's hit. an instant hit. Well, I mean, it's, it's a spy novel that comes out, and we're in the early 50s now. We are in... The real ramp up of the Cold War. Yeah, I mean, you—that's the thing—is all of this espionage, all of these espionage novels, no matter who the foe is, are set against a Cold War background. Yeah, they are published into a Cold War environment that is going gaga over these stories of espionage, and and you have, you know, you have Kim, like well, that's because you have you the have, Kim Philby incident. That like, you have. That's because you have two superpowers yeah. that have destructive capabilities that can destroy everything on planet Earth. Well, I think it's more of a function of the media at the time because so many of the biggest stories at this time were espionage stories. You know, you have the Rosenbergs in the U.S. You have, you know, like the Kim Philby story comes along later and and like the Oxford or the Cambridge Five and all of these spies and all these upper-class spies. And so you interject this story about an upper-class spy that gets into stuff that's even more fantastical than the real-life shit that happened, which is all pretty nuts. But it feeds right. off the real life yeah. shit. Because Fleming yeah. didn't hide his intelligence background. Yeah. And he shows, you know, an aptitude for moral ambiguity in his characters and situations that is incredibly believable and yeah. is kind of unprecedented in time yeah. I mean, he used to... He, and yeah, for he, the record, the Rosenberg, uh, the Rosenbergs were guilty. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll do a, a yeah. Rosenbergs episode um, someday. But, I mean, the book, you know, it, it plays with morals. It has a dour ending. Mm-hmm. There's explicit sex. Incredible violence and absolutely horrific torture, uh, which really reverberates in a post-war society yeah. watching the ramp up of of the Cold War. Um, 
MI6 agent 007 himself. It was so different from every spy novel that had come before because it was so, it was gritty. It was filthy. It was dirty. It was not a children's book. It was, yeah, it wasn't, you know, it it, it wasn't sanitized. No, no, not at all. Yeah, James Bond was not the Hardy Boys. Fair amount of controversy over The world of espionage is fucking grimy. And this fit the bill. Yeah, he didn't steer away from it. He added the glamour to it. There's the, the Rolls Royce. And yeah, but the, the glamour pays off so well against the grime exactly. middle. Bond still gets stripped naked and has his balls beat with a, co- a carpet cleaner. A beater. Yeah. Uh, so 007 himself. You're a Japanese businessman who pay to have that done to them for fun. Good money. Yeah. <laughs> Agent 007 himself was an amalgamation of various different operatives Ian met during the war. And we could, we could spend a whole other hot podcast going into the... His inspirations yeah. for the character, so I'm, I'm not. I, I, I do have a couple that I want to bring up, please. Specifically, do. though, so yeah, so it's he, he, Fleming calls them a quote compound of all the secret agents and commando types I met during the war. He's also kind of modeled after Peter Fleming, who Ian Hero worshipped. Mm-hmm. He's his he has his looks modeled after uh, Fleming himself and Hoagie Carmichael, who just look up pictures of Hoagie Carmichael and you'll you'll kind of get what he's going for. And there are some other inspirations. There's you a know, guy. Yeah. In New England, they call him Grinder Carmichael. Yeah, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and in, in New Jersey, no, hero well, Carmichael. It's a thing. You, uh, well, you but, don't want to go down to Virginia because he's called Sub Carmichael. Yeah. There are a couple guys. <laughs> Do you? But there are uh, a, a couple guys specifically that that Fleming talked about. Um, one was uh, Conrad O'Brien French. French spelled with two F's. Um, who was a British World War One and interwar spy that Fleming had gotten to know while skiing in Austria in the early 30s. Um, there was a guy named Patrick Dalzell Job, who was uh, Fleming's second-in-command at the 30th Assault Unit. And there was a guy named Bill Biffy Dunderdale, who was the... Uh, That's like a fake name. It's like the fake mayor of a, of it's a, an upper, a show it's a, that came out in the 60s. It, it's I don't know, dude. That's it's these upper class. He's a wacky yeah. sheriff. They had it's these aristocratic <laughs> yeah. nicknames, dude. He was a he was the station head of MI6 in Paris in the late 40s and 50s, who wore handmade Savile Row suits, uh, custom cufflinks, and was chauffeured around in a Rolls Royce. You know, keeping a low profile like yeah. you want to do in international yeah. espionage. People joke about Bond rolling around his Aston yeah. now, but you know, and this stuff yeah. kind of happened. And uh, also probably modeled after a guy named uh, Sir Fitzroy McLean, who was. Like who was probably the most popular and effective operative for the SOE. He worked behind the enemy lines in the Balkans and in uh, in Greece and in Yugoslavia, and he was actually probably the guy who was most responsible for bringing Marshal Tito to power. God, <laughs> which is ends up being a bit of an oopsie, but no, the communist partisans happens. in Yugoslavia were more effective. Say, but <laughs> the British sided with them because they were more effective than the Chetniks of fighting the Germans yeah. and keeping more German divisions tied up in Yugoslavia. So Ian recycles a lot of locations from his own life and war experiences during this. Um, and for the names, he tends to pull a lot from uh, his, his social circle, which yep. sometimes gets him in trouble. Uh, <laughs> I love this. There's a couple, there's a couple lawsuits. Uh, well, he named Scaramanga after a guy he used to get in fights with at Eaton. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, he named Goldfinger, or Goldfinger from Goldfinger, after uh, Erno Goldfinger, who was a British architect whose work Fleming absolutely he hated. hated. He abhorred it. He would he would write articles in news. He would do guest spots in newspapers just to talk about how much he hated Erno Goldfinger's architecture. He, a, he, he didn't like you. He didn't um, write it. Yeah, Hugo Drax in Moonraker is named after, and, and brace yourself for this one, 
Admiral Sir Reginald Hugo Aylmer Ranfurly Plunkett Ernley Early Drax. Who uh, Fleming? That man is only allowed was, to be an admiral. Yeah, that's it. He was he was an admiral was, at birth. Was he the third or the fourth? <laughs> I it, that it doesn't say. I believe <laughs> I believe you don't have to. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't get anything like that. Uh, and there was and um, uh, kid of Winton Kid from the 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 gay assassins from Diamonds Are Forever, who is known in the book as Boofy. Uh, was named after Arthur Gore, the eighth Earl of Arran, a, uh, a Scottish noble who was a close friend of Fleming's and was known to his friends as Boofy. Yeah, he wanted the Sioux. I think he was convinced out of it. I wonder if he was he friends with Biffy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, Boofy, isn't, isn't that the name that uh, Capone wanted instead of Scarface? I, I don't oh, know. Oh, no, that was Snorky. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> hey, we're going to call you Scarface. Nah. Uh, how about you call me Snorky? I'd rather be Snorky. <laughs> Make it Snorky. So the hero's name is kind of interesting. That it, the identical name comes from two different places. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he tells a friend uh, from childhood that he um, he liked taking first and last names from childhood classmates and mixing them together to make new names. The person he tells this to says, "Oh yeah, like I would have uh, like like I would have had a James Bond," which he kind of keeps in the back of his head. And when he's on Goldeneye, he notices uh, the author of a field guide he'd been using, Birds of the West Indies, was authored by James Bond. Who was also a spy, like a womanizing yeah. spy in the war, which is super crazy. <laughs> One time. No, he was, he was, was not that. Say, he was not that. He was actually a Kyle, fairly you will heavy set of... That periodically, I just lie no, was, during the, the podcast. Yeah. He was actually the deputy head of the U.S. Autobahn Society. Yeah. And yeah. super not happy about this. Nope, Because he was all. pretty much the opposite and didn't like being teased for the rest of his godforsaken life about being James yeah, Bond. So the original like James when Bond... It's when they make Homer Simpson into a big dope in the show on The Simpsons <laughs> and it ruins Homer's life. Yeah. That's what happened. I just want to know like how, well, how James no, but, Bond makes your life worse. No, but the American James Bond, and I, I, I found a picture of this guy, and he looks like... In science class in middle school or high school, did you guys ever watch any of the Julius Sumner Miller videos? Yeah. He looks like Julius Sumner Miller if he liked to wear more tweed. Okay. Lots, so, of tweet, so, lots of buttons. So, so based on Ian's model, if I were to write a, let's say, I don't know, let's say a John Grisham novel, a, a law book, and I had a judge, I should name him Kavanaugh Brent from Devil's Triangle, West Virginia? Yes. Would that be good? <laughs> no, I, Would that it's, work? it's two different people's yeah. first and last names. Okay. So it'd be like Clarence Cavanaugh. Yes. Okay. It would or, be like Michael God, what Graper. Insufferable fuck yeah. that would be. <laughs> <laughs> My, yeah, My, Michael Graper. But Kyle he would Moore. definitely have to be from Devil's Triangle, right? Oh, of course. You'd be stupid not to. <laughs> of course. Yes. You'd be foolish. Uh, <laughs> so Eden feeds, feeds off some personal experiences, despite adding a ton of completely outlandish scenarios, which only increase in later books. He displays a deep understanding of international politics and intelligence operations. Uh, he basically takes annual fact-finding expeditions that would become a regular part of his writing process. Uh, for Live and Let Die, Ian joins detectives in Harlem, buries himself in voodoo culture in Jamaica, and visits beautiful St. Petersburg in Florida to scout the location of Mr. Big's warehouse. A train ride across Europe, as well as his own hunt for the German Enigma machine, helps inspire From Russia With Love. Yeah. 
uh, Japanese bathhouses and his time in Japan for You Only Live Twice, his love of Kent, and uh, his disagreement with the relocation of German scientists after the war factor into Moonraker and its Nazi villain. Uh, and his experiences discovering uh, V2 facilities. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it, the war. As, the, as they go on, it's like the guys stop being Nazis. Mm-hmm. Like the the bad guy, there's kind of a paradigm shift, but you can yeah. tell that like he uses Nazi bad guys because he's still oh, yeah. pissed off at them. Well, it's reflective like, of that paper you wrote for one of your film classes in college, where you talked about you could tell what was going on in the oh, world yeah. politics scene by who Arnold Schwarzenegger was fighting in the yeah, movies. Exactly, yeah. Mm-hmm. exactly. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm honored you remember. But me yeah, that yeah, story. but like up to about into the late '80s, he the he goes from like former Nazis and and you know. You know, escape Nazis to smirsh the Russian counterintelligence mm-hmm. service to, and then he ends up creating Spectre. Yeah, which creates his own headache. Yeah. Uh, so uh, his love of golf factors in largely in Goldfinger, uh, and a tour of Los Angeles and Las Vegas uh, factor in Diamonds Are Forever. His research for that book, uh, particularly into beers and diamond trafficking, uh, also factor into his first nonfiction novel, The Diamond Smuggler, is based off interviews with security expert John Cullard, who had worked with De Beers. Uh, so in all, Ian would write 13 full-length Bond novels, as well as various short stories, uh, the last two being published after his death. Uh, in addition, he did write one children's book, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, uh, which was based off a story he used to tell his son. Yeah. And was published two months after his death. He uh, he consulted on the creation of the TV series The Man from Uncle. Mm-hmm. Um, was not it wasn't Chitty Chitty Bang Bang the movie? It became a movie. Well, it became the movie. Wasn't yeah. wasn't Benny Hill in that? I have no idea. I I've think never he seen was. It. I'm pretty sure that was like one of his. I've seen the trailer. You never saw you Chitty should, Chitty Bang you, Bang? You've no. never seen Chitty Chitty Bang no, Bang? No, I haven't. I haven't it's, seen it since I was little. It's one of the little, old Disney little. movies on Disney Plus that's yeah. not like crazy racist, so you can still watch it. Oh, good. <laughs> I mean, just because it came out in 68. Of course, it yeah. has Benny Hill, so uh, I think it uh, has. Yeah, Benny Hill's the toy maker. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's a Dick yeah. Van Dyke movie. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Man, a name that could not be out today. <laughs> uh, also, another another James Bond, um, Gert Frobe is in it. Yeah. Oh. Our Goldfinger, Goldfinger yeah. himself, uh, is the Baron, who they had to dub because his accent was so heavy it's in Goldfinger. So yep, bad that they had to redo it all the lines. Uh, so, for the decade after Casino Royale's publication, Ian lives by a sort of annual routine. January, he flies to Goldeneye and begins writing his next book. After a slight delay, he's joined by Anne. He hosts guest one time even Truman Capote, which Anne thought was the funniest damn thing in the world. Yeah, it's because he had a funny voice. And well, and she kept it implying is. that they were fucking each other. And they probably were. Uh, he Wouldn't put it past them. Mm, yeah. In cold blood. Uh, mm. So he would spend his mornings writing, uh, followed by swimming, lunch, drinks, a nap. He'd review the materials the following. Or it's not a evening. nap if you've had three quarters of a bottle of gin. Yeah. <laughs> like if you're just totally faced, it's not a nap. It's, it's a rally at that point. Yeah. So in the spring, he returns to England. It's, with it's manu- a boost news. <laughs> yeah, it's a boost news. Uh, in spring, he returns to England with uh, manuscript in hand, uh, where he picks up his newspaper responsibilities, uh, bounces between their many homes at this point and golf courses, uh, fleshes out the concept for his next work, travels to research said work and compose articles for the Sunday Times, 
Preparations for the previous novels released in the United States are hashed out where edits were necessary or made. Uh, during this time, his newest work is generally edited and published in England. Uh, in the summers, he takes a few weeks to visit friends in America. And after the holiday season in Britain, he starts the cycle anew and returns to Jamaica. Uh, as the years tick by, Ian's domestic comfort falls victims to his own melancholia. Uh, Anne and Ian begin fighting constantly. On occasion, he coolly outlined the differences in their characters. She liked company. He preferred spending evenings alone. She had a position in dependence, notably her children from a previous marriage. Uh, he had nothing except his cherished freedoms. She was a natural. He was unnatural, which is a suggestion that Ian understood the extent to which he was his own self-invention. Far removed from the more entertaining sadomasochism of their youth, they hurt each other now on a deep and personal... The, the hurt they cause each other now is deep, personal, and vicious. Neither has been particularly faithful lovers... The, the, the kind of stuff there's no safe word for. Yeah, exactly. Uh, neither has been particularly faithful lovers, and unsurprisingly, Anne's third and Ian's first marriage was not going to change this. Uh, Ian begins seeing Blanche Blackwell, one of his neighbors from an influential business family in Jamaica, and a mother of, or the mother of uh, the founder of Island Records, yeah. uh, who would remain close to him until his very death. Uh, and seeing Hugh Gaskell, uh, leader of the Labor Party. By all accounts, the love was still there. While Ian was adamant Flemings don't get divorces, they re remained bound more by their shared history, their loyalty towards the child, uh, who was growing into a really intelligent but difficult boy. And they were both getting laid on the side. Both getting well, laid that's on the, thing the is, side. Blanche Blackwell was also the, um, the kind of Fleming's muse and was the inspiration yeah. for Pussy Galore yeah. and so many of the other yeah. Bond girl figures mm -hmm. that we'd see in the in the novels and in the in I'm the films just glad later. that it took a guy with, with Fleming's kind of... I, I don't even want to say reputation, but that might be the one. Where he can get away with writing a character who is a lesbian named Pussy Galore, who commands an all-female gang of assassins. Yeah, it's a little <laughs> on the nose. It's Bond, incredibly on the nose, that, and he loves every second of it. Bond kind of rapes into straightness. Well, I mean... It, what, it, she's also not the only one that Bond rapes. No, <laughs> like, no. This I mean, one just changes what was, sides. What was the name from... And I can't the remember Spy Who Loved name. Me is like, basically a woman's perspective of being saved by Bond and then more or less raped by him. I, I, I oh, yeah. I can't remember... Um, if, if it's her name in the book, but in the Moonraker movie, at least, it's Holly Dr. Holly Goodhead. Yes. <laughs> Again, not that not He was, that he was not a subtle man. Mm. Yeah, but as subtle as cracking a walnut with a fucking sledgehammer. Yeah. Mm. Um, at this point, the relationship itself puts great strain on the both of them, uh, and at times seems to be an all-consuming weight. Uh, Anne would grow to resent her time at Goldeneye. Ian would dread his very uh, returning to England. Uh, especially her constant hosting. Um, so, before a publishing contract is signed, it was pretty clear that Bond was meant for the screen. Uh, but that was a journey that would take the character in the 1960s. Various attempts were made, concepts for television series developed, episodes written. In one case, actually made at CBS yes. in 1954. Yeah, uh, a live one. A live one, yeah. Uh, scripts for one-off films explored. Or they made James Bond American. Yes, they did. And uh, Felix Leiter, British. British, yeah, they flipped it. Yep. Uh, with Barry Nelson and Peter Lorre Peter as Le Chiffre. Yep. Yeah. Uh, what would become the basis of... Uh, oh, I'm sorry. So scripts for one-off films are explored, but save for a live... What would become the basis for the novel Thunderball began in 1958 as a script written for 
a film to be produced by Ivar Bryce and Kevin McClory. Uh, after second thoughts about McClory's involvement, as well as the failure to secure funding, Ian reinterprets this as a novel for which McClory promptly sues him. Yep. Uh, the resulting legal case not only added the Fleming's deteriorate health, but created intellectual property problems for the franchise going forward, and in some cases going into the 2000s. Yep. I believe the last lawsuit related to that was settled in 2008. Yeah, that's how we got the film Spectre. Yeah. Uh, Spectre, as an organization, premiered in the screenplay for Thunderball. Yeah. Uh, that's also how Never Say Never Again got made, because the agreement they eventually <laughs> come to was that they couldn't do a Thunderball-based Thunderball film re- for yeah. a decade. Right. Thunderball Redux. Uh so yeah, also the only uh, one of two non-Eon productions related Bond films ever made. The other one had Woody Allen in it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so in 1961, the origins for Bond's proper leap to cinemas was born. Uh, Fleming sold the six-month option to Harry Saltzman, who, with American producer Albert Cubby Broccoli, Cubby, I know all about him, forms Eon Productions. Uh, the relatively unknown Sean Connery is signed for the title role. And Dr. No starts production. Uh, as the population, or as the popularity of his creation detonates, Ian's health also starts to rapidly deteriorate. A lifetime of Herculean quantities of cigarettes and alcohol, heart disease, migraines from a metal plate in his nose, yep. from an old Eaton injury. So what, 70 cigarettes a day? 70 cigarettes a day, bottle of gin. Bottle of gin. That's, that's, that's professional right yeah. there. 70 cigarettes a day. How is that possible? You never have a free uh, uh, both of your hands. You never smoke ten packs a day. You're never asleep, literally. (laughs) Uh, This compounded with the stress of an unhappy home life and mounting legal troubles take their toll. Ian suffers a massive heart attack in 1961 at the age of 53. By the time Doctor No hit theaters, Ian was too unwell to be more than a shadow at its premiere. All the more worse by the time From Russia With Love opens in May 1964. Evelyn, the mother who towered over much of Ian's life, passed on July 27, 1964. Ian insists against doctor's orders on attending the funeral in the rain and is again rewarded with bronchitis. Yep. For real this time. Uh, on August 11, 1964, after lunch and dinner out with Ann and friends, Ian's body finally gave way and he suffers another heart attack. His last words were to his ambulance crew. I am sorry to trouble you chaps. I don't know how you get along so fast with the traffic on the roads these days. In the early hours of August 12th, Caspar's 12th birthday, Ian Fleming was gone. Yep. The loss of yet another lover devastates Anne, and Caspar was never able to shake his own troubles. Ian's only child commits suicide by way of drug overdose in October 1975. 23 years old. Anne outlives them both and passes in 1981 and is buried next to the two. While Casper and Eve were alive, the rights to Bond remained with a holding company he had set up, Guildrose. Although they had very little say in its direction. Uh, Films continued, new books under new authors were written, and Ian's unpublished works were were published. A series of short stories, I think one more full novel. Uh, In time, the property came into the the purview of Peter's children, uh, who still control it today. His two daughters are still alive. Can we take a moment to talk about Peter? Yeah, fire away. So this guy, like I said, he's 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 Diabian. Um, he's older than Ian by a year. He's hero worshipped by his younger brother. He is he's he goes to Eton. He's a year ahead at Eton. He ends up going to Oxford. He gets that upper class Oxbridge education. He's a member of the famed Bullingdon Club. I mean, that's like it's like the Skull and Bones Society, except no hair on their nuts. We no talked hair, about yeah. this one. 
Well, no, that's that's at Oxford, so they're a little older. <laughs> uh, edited the yearbook and the newspapers at both establishments. Uh, married the actress Celia Johnson from Brief Encounter in the Prime of Miss Jean Brody. Um, in April of 1932, Peter Fleming replied to an advertisement in the Times personal columns, quote, Exploring and sporting expedition under an under experienced guidance, leaving England in June to explore rivers in central Brazil, if possible to ascertain the fate of Colonel Perny, Percy Fawcett, the uh, British explorer who had disappeared in the Brazilian jungle in 1925 while searching for the fabled lost city of Z. You've ever heard that story? Mm-hmm. Huh. Uh, abundant game, big and small. Exceptional fishing. Room for two more guns. Highest references expected and given. And so he he, he joins, Peter Fleming joins uh, this expedition. He travels to Sao Paulo to kick everything off. He ends up getting into a fight with the expedition leader over objectives and finances and forms his own breakaway faction that ends up doing a better job of exploring the Amazon basin than the original group. They still don't achieve their goals. They don't find out what happened to Percy Fawcett. They don't find the fabled lost city of Z, because it doesn't exist. And they end up making it back to the start point first, so they're the ones who get the word out. And he ends up publishing a book called Brazilian Adventure that sold very well in Britain and in the Commonwealth and has actually still been in continuous print Hmm. since 1933. Um, There's a quote in the book, Sao Paulo is like Reading, only much further away. Oh, God. (laughs) So good. Which I like. Um, he ends up traveling through Asia throughout the 1930s, and he uh, he writes two books while traveling called One's Company, and uh, travels in Tartary. He traveled thousands of miles. He met and interviewed the most influential leaders in the region, including like Chiang Kai-shek, uh, a, a whole bunch of people in China, Manchu uh, Kuo, uh, Korea, and this is the point where the Japanese have seized Manchuria mm-hmm. and like... You have a whole bunch of stuff with the Koreans, and you have the Chinese nationalists, and you have the communists. Um, the forward to one's company says, The recorded history of Chinese civilization covers a period of 4,000 years. The population of China is estimated at 450 million. China is larger than Europe. The author of this book is 26 years old. He has spent, altogether, less than seven months in China. He does not speak Chinese. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Uh, in World War II, he ends up serving as a Grenadier Guards officer and ends up working behind enemy lines in Norway and Greece, organizing guerrilla units from the local population, and then he serves in the China-Burma-India theater fighting the Japanese in charge of military deception operations. So, in many ways, he's a lot like his brother, yeah. and this also helps to serve as an inspiration mm-hmm. for the Bond character. And he continued writing uh, novels, and especially travel guides, uh, newspaper articles, and essays, many under the pen name Strix, which is Latin for Screech Owl. I'm the Screech Owl. I don't know why he picked that <laughs> that name. Well, and he publishes his own kind of teardown of spy novels yeah. immediately yeah. before Casino Rouse published called, I think it was The Sixth Column. Yeah, that's an awkward, that's an awkward Christmas. <laughs> and um, and he, one of his works is, is... Is it really that awkward? Because what are we still reading? <laughs> that's true. <exactly. laughs> like, that's true. Like, who had the last? Not just saying Christmas 1952. Yeah, From yeah, that no. point on, I think. But we like know for the rest of them, as he was just like eating cigarettes one after yeah. another, he was just staring at him wide eyed. <laughs> so the competition was always one. That's probably why he was. He's just like he's got he's got the glass and he's got the long cigarette holding. Just one cigarette between Do it. each finger. Just. Do it. Do it. Write something, dude. Do it. Go for it. Well, he did. Do write. it. <laughs> Turns out Peter. This is this is kind of fun. And. and Peter wrote a book in 1940, a little work of fiction called The Flying Visit, in which Adolf Hitler sneaks into Britain via plane in order to propose secretly propose peace with Winston Churchill. 
almost exactly a year later, Deputy yep. Fuhrer Rudolph Hess does yep. exactly that. <laughs> With the exception of, in the flying visit, the, the English don't know what to do, so they just send Hitler back. Whereas, <laughs> they put Rudolph Hess in jail. Yeah. He, he crash-landed in Scotland. <laughs> and like, there's BBC video footage of the, of the farmer who found him. It's this Scottish <laughs> farmer who goes, I'm the man who captured Rudolf Hess. I found his crashed plane, helped him out, gave him a cup of tea, and I called the police. And Meanwhile, his sheep are just kicking the shit out of Hess in the backyard. <laughs> you bastard. I'm <laughs> oh, sorry, that was, that was low-hanging fruit. I'm so sorry. Yeah, that was it. It, it. But it was good, though. So, yeah, so, so past Ian Fleming. Yeah, so past Ian Fleming. Uh, it's now... He's, he's, he's been dead for... So, yeah, so you said 25th film. That's the 25th Eon film, right? 25th Eon film. Because you have Never Say Never Again, yep. a.k.a. Thunderpaw Redux. And then you have... Yeah, that was filmed concurrently as a, as a Roger Moore film. And I don't remember which one it well, was. Well, there was... There were, um, but because the, there was contractual disagreement was, between the studios. Yeah. Well, it was it was filmed concurrently with the one with all... The one because that he wasn't before James the one Bond with all the blimps. Yeah. It was, it, was it Live and Let Die? No, it wasn't Live and Let... Um, no, Live and Let Die was 73. That was the first Roger Moore yeah. film. I should know this. It's But yeah, they were filmed concurrently because... They, for, yours, for Your Eyes Only came out the same year. Okay. Yeah. And Not then, the one with the blimps. And that the was had all the blimps. Yeah, that was the one with goddamn that Christopher Walken. Kill. Christopher Spy. Walken. I love that movie. I mean, it's, I it's terrible, it the greatest, most horrible James Bond movie Roger Moore's made. like 95 in it. James Sinjin Smythe. Oh yeah, that's the one with his fuck ship after the uh, yes. after, he invents, uh, after he invents snowboarding. Correct. <laughs> yes, yes, he does. And, to and, the Beach Boys. And, and yes, that he was does. Great. That was the Gracie Jones movie, right? Yeah. It was. Oh yeah. 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 It was. But yeah, I mean, man, you want to talk about a legacy? The character is more popular now than it's ever been. Yeah. I mean these these are the, the last couple films have cracked a billion dollars a piece. Seven point three billion dollars total gross. For over all 26 Bond films. And yeah. that's just the films. One of the biographies I was watching said that um, when it came to the 14 novels that he's written, when they turned to film, over half the world's population has seen a James Bond film. Yeah. It, that's like Coca-Cola levels. Yeah, yeah. No, it is. It's, that's it's, three it's, and a half... Billion people. James Bond have is one of the most ubiquitous yeah. film characters. And well, and just character in general. I mean, like yeah. our age group. Like yeah. I was exposed to the GoldenEye video game before I ever saw a film. Yeah, I, I saw cartoons that referenced the character when I was three or four years old. Before, if I, I, if I were to ask my cousin what channel we used to watch James Bond marathons on whenever we were seven or eight years old at my grandfather's camp, I can almost guarantee you he could still say the number. It was one six eight. And I, I can almost guarantee. Um, Spy, or it was, TNT it was, or Spike? It was, yeah. it was Spike TV. It was, yeah, when Spike TV was like new. Yeah. And yeah. They did like the 13 Days of Bond Festival. Yep. Oh, yeah. We used to watch I it every year. Um, yeah, my father, my father first showed me, I believe it was uh, Thunderball, the original Thunderball, not Never Say Never Again, mm -hmm. when I was, I think I was nine. It's one of my favorites. I love Thunderball a lot. Nah, slow, it's, too slow of a big fight. It, it's Disco Volante. It's the flying saucer. Well, and at the great. time they were, I mean, that was part, like, he wrote that into the books because at yeah. the time he was, he was spending so much time himself diving on his property. Yeah. He was one of the first authors, at least in a fiction setting, to really describe what underwater was really like. Yeah. 
And, and like the crashed Vulcan bomb. Well, that As they were just that doesn't, around get, Jacques that doesn't even get into the fact that Ian Fleming was uh, he he was basing that on the Buster Crab yeah issue, which is a total another thing. Mm-hmm. We're not going to get into that, but but yeah, he sold thirty million books in his lifetime. There were sixty million of his books that were sold in the two years following his death. He's been the subject. Yeah, of, he doubled his book yeah. sales at posthumously. Yeah, yeah. He, he, there are six biographical films that have been made about him. Dozens of biographical literary works, books, articles, essays, all of that. They're still writing Bond novels. Yeah. Well, the the yeah. the, the Times uh, named him number fourteen on the greatest uh, ever British writers. Um, yeah, twenty six Bond films. There's the 1954 CBS TV adaptation with Barry Nelson and Peter Lorre. Mm-hmm. Uh, 49 Bond films or Bond novels written after Fleming's death by various authors. Mm-hmm. Um, dozens of radio plays um, include actually the voice of Bond in all the BBC radio plays is uh, Toby Stevens, huh? Who was um, he was uh, in Captain the, Flint in Black Sails? Yeah, Captain Flint in Black Sails, and he was the uh, and he was the Bond villain in uh, Die, Die Another, Another Day. Day. Yeah. Right. Um, Boy, what a goddamn nightmare of a oh, movie that was. Oh, yeah. That was an awful one. It was terrible. I mean, it's it better than the one with Denise Richards. Well, Casino, let me ask like, this. If you want to talk about how how this guy was cranking out yeah. novels, Casino Royale was April 1953. Live and Let Die was April 1954. Yearly. Yeah, April 1955, yeah. March 1956, April 1957, March 1958, March 1959, April 1960, March 61, April 62, April 63, March 64, April 65, and June 66. That's why Jonathan Cape loved him as a mm-hmm. publishing house, because he was on pretty much a schedule. He, no, he, well, no, it wasn't pretty much. He was on a schedule. He spent well, three months at the start of each year cranking out a new book, and the previous year was spent researching it. Again... Again, what I what I got in my research was that he was at any given time the whole way through those years. He was writing a novel that year. He was editing the novel from the last year, and he was planning the novel for the next year. Yeah, yeah and then so he went super nuts and tried to kill Bond. Time, he was <laughs> like every novel for the back half. On Three James Bond novels. Yeah. Plus the edits to the U.S. version, which right. was usually the previous, previous year's novel. Which, which is, uh, um, talk about From Russia with Love. At the end of From Russia with Love, in the book, Russia er, Bond gets shot in the legs with poison darts. Stabbed. Dogs. Stabbed with the shoe knife. Or, yeah. Or, yeah, stabbed, yeah, stabbed with the shoe knife. I'm sorry. You heathen. Philistines. But my yeah. God. I, I haven't re- I haven't I'm sorry. Haven't read it lately. But yeah. But like, <laughs> that said You haven't been keeping up with your smirsh. Yeah. They um it, it it's it's pretty much thought that Ian was thinking about killing off Bond. He said he no, was not going. Per- yeah, he yeah, said like, like a ton that he was just done at that point. Yeah. And then the reception was amazing and he went, All right, I guess I'll do another one. Yeah. You think, how does JK Rowling exactly. feel about the Harry Potter character now? As long as they're not trans, she's going to love every second of it. Um, But yeah, so dozens of comic books, over $5 billion in merch sales. Uh, Eight actors have played Bond, if you count uh, Perry Nelson and Woody Woody. Woody Allen. Um, I mean, you don't have to. Yeah, (laughs) but... uh, and that the number of films and the number of actors that have portrayed him putting him on a level with film characters like Julius Caesar yeah. Al Capone Jesus Christ 
King Arthur, Robin Hood. I mean, it's he is one. Of the I most have people ask me for a drink that only existed in a novel oh, in 1963. The Vesper. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you can't make any more. It yeah. doesn't exist. But that's, and, the, the, some of the ingredients don't exist. But it's quite alright. And of course, it also inspires because nobody gives a shit anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and, and it inspires the entire facet of like espionage media, which becomes a huge thing throughout the Cold War. Um, you know, the John le Carre novels are, mm-hmm. are influenced, although they're a little more realistic. Um, but, you know, the carry-on spying movies with uh, Benny Hill. Mm-hmm. Um, Austin Powers, uh, the, J- the Jason Bourne series, all these are inspired by Fleming's work. I mean, he has... he ha- yep. the, the airport at Ocho Rios, Jamaica, which is right out a few miles down the road from the GoldenEye estate, is called Ian Fleming International Airport. Yeah. And he was revolutionary in merchandising. Yeah. Um, so Fleming wasn't, but the franchise was. Yeah. Fleming used name brands to add realism to his stories, but he wasn't looking to make money off them. In fact, never took money to 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 do so. Filmmakers had no problem doing that. Yeah. Uh, cars, cell phones, alcohol brands. People still try to. Yeah. People will pay millions of dollars for the Aston Martin DB5. I would pay millions of dollars for the Aston Martin DB5. Someone give me millions of dollars. Just because of that, of those movies and that mm. and those books. I mean, a first uh, first edition hardback of Casino Royale signed by Ian Fleming just sold for auction at auction for $19,200. Hmm. That actually doesn't surprise me. The first edition was only like 4500 That's a lot. Well, one of the things that I would argue about, I mean, as we're talking about the overall of this, and the reason I say this is because, honestly, I'm older than all y'all. I caught the tail end of uh, the Cold War. And I think one of the reasons that Ian Fleming and the James Bond series were were so... I, I think the reason these stories were so popular was because this was internal posturing. And by internal posturing, sure. what I mean is we were scared shitless. Yeah. We needed to turn on a movie and see that, look, here's Russia. There's a whole bunch of bad guys out there. And here's this one guy that can come through and yeah, save always, the world. You can always rely on him to stop the apocalypse and save the world. But even on top of that, especially if Russia, Fleming was convinced the Cold War was going to end quickly. So well, everybody was. Very rarely, and this continues into the film series, are the Russians really the villains? It's generally a rogue third party that sets the two powers against each other. That's why Smirsh turns into Spectre. Right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So even that divide can be crossed. I guess what I'm talking about is the average Joe sitting there watching A View to a Kill or Octopussy or whatever. We want to see, here's the Russians, here's our good guy, whether he's MI6 or whether he's, you know, you know whether he's in our intelligence agency. We're dealing with, you know, what we're doing is we're fighting those two areas and... We just don't want to be scared. We want James Bond. We want Martini shaken, not stirred. You know, we, we, we want this suave guy to come in and say, it's going to be okay. So, I mean, that's, I mean, that's kind of my overall take on... Hmm. It's empowering. What, yeah. 
a good guy can make the difference. And, and get a lay a lot of pipe in the process. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's like he's a pool boy at Falwell's house. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And that is the story of Ian Fleming. Thank you, Kyle. Thank you so much for uh, Appreciate you coming out, doing Kyle. all that work. Um, I'm tired. <laughs> I think we're all tired. Yeah, this is this is without question our longest episode. Yeah, could have been a two-parter, but oh well. Yeah. Save it for save it for a long commute. Break it up, bookmark it, do what you have to do. You've um, got two weeks. You can yeah. get through this. Yeah. This advice at the end of the episode is going to be really helpful for them. I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, if, uh, if you would like to uh, check us out on social media or get in contact with us, Chris... If you want to find us on social media, look no further than just searching Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades on Facebook. If you want to find us on Twitter, you can hit us up at PodcastTRR. Uh, on Instagram, we are simply TRRPod. Uh, and if you'd like to get in touch with us directly, uh, TRRPod at gmail.com. And if you would like to uh, support the podcast financially, you think what we do is worth a couple bucks for as little as a dollar a month. You can help support us uh, get access to uh, bigger and better research materials, help build our studio space, get bigger and better sound equipment so we can keep bringing you uh, bigger and better podcasts. Go to www.patreon.com slash trrpod. So for the next episode, we are handing it over to Mr. Michael Ornette for his mandate. Oh, yes, and you guys are going to love it. I'm going to talk about a major general pain in the ass. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about Daniel Edgar Sickles. Dan Sickles. Um, this man, he killed a guy. Not with a trident, but he <laughs> killed a guy. And you guys can hear all about it uh, on the next uh, podcast. I'm actually uh, I'm tapping my little brother because... Uh, well, there's going to be lots of stories about that, but we're both Civil War buffs. and Yeah, it'll be great to have Jim back. It was yeah, great yeah, having yeah, him yeah, on for the, yeah, uh, we're, hey, we're the gonna, Black Sox episode. Yeah, we're going to guest spot him just so that we can uh, make sure that we have all the data, and you're going to have a lo- we're going to have a lot of fun with this episode. So. Awesome. Looking in the meantime, to it. In the meantime, make sure that uh, you keep sending that erotic fan fiction in. Um, if you guys are into the Bob Crane sex cult... Um, we're still doing the no-shave pandemic, so um, um, look, if you want to send your pledges, send them to our Patreon. I'll get them. You know we're and just getting hair clippings in an envelope. <laughs> That's whatever. It's fine. It's I'll fine. still save them. I don't yeah. give a shit. Mail them to me. <laughs> can use them in a ritual. Are you, getting, are, are you getting any blonde and red? A little bit of red. A little bit of red. Oh, nice. Yeah, sorry nice. about that. I particularly like the red. You will be elevated in the in the hierarchy when when it comes to... All hail the glorious yeah. leader. Um, yeah, big, oh, big... good. <laughs> uh, yeah, big thanks to everybody who's been supporting Chris and his campaign for Pittsburgh's best bartender. Yeah, by the, the time paper. this comes out, the... Uh, it, the voting should be over, and I should have won. And if I didn't win, I blame all of you. Yep. Um, yes, thanks to all of our Patreon subscribers. Thank you to everybody listening. We will catch you, uh, we'll yeah, I catch you next time. Yeah, I want to thank the dog for sleeping this time and not pulling yeah. Kyle's yeah, shoes really. off in the middle of an episode. <laughs> like yeah, last yeah, big thanks to uh, to Vinny Bag of Donuts down there. and uh, Vinny, the chief science officer. <laughs> uh we're off to uh, get a special little gadget from Q Branch that will uh, 
Help us hold fast. If it's another exploding pen, I swear to God, I'm going to lose my fucking mind. Hold fast, everybody. We'll see you later. Thank you.